hello. Oh. Are you coming with my mouthful? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a it's a special holiday party. Mm. It, that, that's what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I have to adjust. My, we're, you're loud. I'm loud. Mm. We're all loud. Um. Good morning. Good morning, Don. Good, good morning, Ben. Hey. So we'll we'll apologize um, to the listeners in advance. Um. Uh, I'm at on hotel Wi-Fi. And, and and also I'm in a, a hotel room where uh, you cannot apparently shut the uh, fan off. So there there may if you for those audio files of you who are listening um, uh, carefully, uh, you'll you'll note that there is a hum in the background from the fan. Well, and I'll I'll, uh, I'll apologize for uh, I'm at home for this uh, very special holiday edition. Uh, my children are in the next room. Um, watching uh, YouTube videos of uh, either uh, one of two things. One, people play video games. Uh, uh, so they are watching others play video games. and um, Or uh, they're watching uh, a series of YouTube uh, shows on uh, things that people find in the river, um, <laughs> including old cell phones. Well, you know, Ben, um, you told me what you were up to this morning, um, and that and that oh sent gosh. me uh, that sent me to YouTube um, because I there is a a very um, and now you probably can hear the um, the, the re- no no remaining, you're good uh, oh no it's... remaining uh, uh, hotel coffee brewing into a cup because oh. I needed more I ha- I got some good coffee and now I'm going to have some bad hotel room coffee but um. Uh, your comment about talking to contractors, kitchen contractors this morning just triggered a, uh, like I had a, a moment where I was thinking about uh, the conversation that you were having with your kitchen contractor about how you were there because you had to go home, uh, because you, you were there at work to get your, pick up your microphone. So you had to go home to do a podcast yep. and immediately I thought, do you know, do you know what video I'm thinking of? No. Oh, okay. So, so, uh, I'm thinking of that that classic uh, 1980s uh, hit by Dire Straits called Money for Nothing, where um, <laughs> Mark Knopfler sings this sign, uh, sings this uh, lyric about, about um, uh, you know, the whole video is about these kitchen contractors, these guys who are installing a fancy kitchen, complaining about these rock stars who get money for nothing. And, and I'm just thinking here, uh, this guy who's building your kitchen at work is probably thinking, oh, he's this podcaster getting money for nothing, you know. Get, getting a blister on his I, yeah. little finger <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> from holding and, the microphone and, and I, or something. Yeah, had to get up, had to get up early just so he could yeah. get get him get his microphone. microphone yeah. yeah. So anyway, yeah. so that that's what I was uh, doing shortly before you called. That's hilarious. Um, so yeah, no, you, you're exactly right. I uh, did not plan super well, knowing that we were going to do this at home. I should have brought my microphone home uh, on the, uh, the 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 last day I was in my office, which was December twentieth. Um, but I uh, but I didn't, and then uh, and then I thought, oh, I'll just get there, uh, and then I uh, I kind of forgot to to get it until today. But um, you know, this uh, happened uh, once before before the the snowstorm episode, right? Right. I and and I didn't rectify like the snowstorm <laughs> episode, which which just posted last night. Um, <laughs> Uh, I didn't rectify the things that I said I was going to do, which was uh, purchase a new microphone uh, and one at home and have one in in my office and then not not have to worry about this anymore. I'm it, it is my New Year's resolution to to Don. I think I should I think we should start getting serious about the podcast. You know, we're 171 episodes in. I think I might you know, this might have some staying power. 
Might have to might have to invest some some time into this, <laughs> or or at least learn how to leave yourself a reminder. You know, using uh, one of the the many devices that you have. That's what I do. It's not That's that hard. Great, it's a great idea. No, I, hey, hey I, Siri, uh, remind Ben to get the microphone next time. Alexa, stop. <laughs> uh, um, so what? <laughs> what I? Uh, what? I, so so the week before. Um, uh, the, the Christmas break was a little bit chaotic. And, and so we, we recorded episode 171 on, um, not to, not to compromise our OPSEC too much, uh, on December 18th was in the past. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you speak, speaking of which, have you, have you, have you watched that, uh, Mr. Show episode, um, that Merlin is constantly referencing? Um, no. Okay. So, or it's it's a it's a bit. I think it's a Mister Show bit. I will I will I will find it for show notes. And is that the opsec? Is that the origin of of not compromising my opsec? No, no. That's the origin of you should have you should have tuned in last week for the show oh. where <laughs> we're talking about. Anyway, yeah. Uh, right, right. It's, it's much uh, funner, more funny when Merlin does it. Of course, um, everything is. Uh, so so I. I did that. We did the show and then, um, we were, I, I was like pretty much dropped everything else last week because of, because of these kitchens, which you very, very sweetly, um, said in, in our text, uh, um, I, let me see what it said. I said, I think I'm going to do something with the, uh, here we go. Uh, I have to post our episode. I've been slammed with kitchens. And you said, also, we should do plan to do a deep dive on mullets, which we'll come back to. <laughs> uh, hoping to do it tomorrow. And then you said very sweetly, no worries. I know these those kitchens are very important. Um, That's and true. That they was, are. Because they are. They are. And they are taking um, a, a, a way more time than than expected, but but worth it very much so in the end, like we'd talked about in previous podcasts. But, um, but all, all I did last week was, um, things like do some cleaning, uh, in, in those kitchens, uh, set up the ovens, things that the contractors and, and the subcontractors don't do, like peel the plastic off of the, um, off the refrigerators. And it, it, there's something really satisfying about being like not doing all other things. Cause you know, we get, we, we both get, and everyone in, you know, in our kind of, um, world and positions, we get bombarded from lots of different directions on requests and, uh, deadlines and things. And by bombarded, I mean, I've promised to do things and then I just don't do them, uh, up until a, a deadline. And so, I, uh, you know, last week I just kind of didn't do anything else other than focus on that. And, and, um, and it's, it's little, little things like, like four or five conversations to figure out, you know, where a light needs to go because it, the way it was in the plans wasn't adjusted for, for field use. <laughs> like it just didn't, it just didn't work because the plans had a, had a, a light going somewhere, but, but then a cabinet door opens right at that light. And so when you overlay these plans, uh, atop, atop of one another, um, it doesn't, it doesn't work. So now we have to move that and then we have to move some other lights and we had to make some, some decisions on that kind of stuff. And so when, when it got down to the, to the end and we're still uh, getting down to the end cause it's not finished. And, um, you know, today when I went and picked up my microphone, the, um, contractor and a couple of electricians were there finishing some things off. Uh, there was a, 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 the, the last 
20%, I, mean, I think there's a rule of 80-20 here. The last 20% of the project, 80% of the decisions are happening. Um, all little, little things. Um, 80% of the, the number of decisions where the first little bit was like, okay, we have a, we have a big storage room, put up a kitchen. And so it's like, put up some walls. Those things are, 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 it, it takes time, but they're, they're less nuanced than where does this light go? So it, so it gives first of all, the correct amount of light and, um, doesn't, when you open it, doesn't get bumped. So so stuff like that has been um, has has derailed time, but it's been very um, uh, calming, I guess, in the same way because uh, I have this built-in excuse. It was like when I had a kid, where I was like, well, I can't do that because I got kids, or I you know I can't I got to go home because my you know my two year old and this the kitchens have given me this excuse that that everyone kind of nods at, and I don't know how long I'll get the pass, but I'm like I got to go deal with this kitchen thing because it's we have to finish. Um, and, uh, and anyway, that's what I, what I did the week before, before Christmas. So, and, and a little bit. so, so, so tell me this. So who is, was it, was it one person that, that designed where the cabinets were going to go and a different person that decided where the lights were going to go? Like, and how much uh, of this is your yeah. fault? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so I would say 0% of it is my fault. Um, it, no, it's it's the same it's the same people. So there's there's an architect or architect that uh, developed some plans, and the the issue that I'm realizing comes in is that so you start with a base plan, and then your mechanical, HVAC, electrical is all based off of that that base plan. And that base plan says, here are the things that we're going to – these are where the walls are going to go. These are the, about the, the place where some ovens are going to go. This is where we need emergency lights to go and the fire alarm. And then as you as you get into the space over time um, and we selected what our, our cabinets and countertops are going to look like. So, so the plan happens and then you go get the – the fixtures and the fittings and you pick the lights and, and we, we did this in a way where a lot of it was, was kind of pieced together because of, and and this will not surprise you at all, um, working in a land grant institution and being a state employee, um, where there are rules at the state level that dictated how we could do this, that made it really difficult to do it in the way that most people build things, which is you have one contractor and you have one architect and, and then they make, then they work together to make a bunch of decisions and come back to you as the person who's building something. Well, we have, some facilities, building folks at the university that that have to make sure that everything fits within the rest of our infrastructure. So that throws a complication into the mix. And then when we started the project, it started out as a, a less expensive project than what it ended up being. And because of that, it changed how our approval system worked and how we we had to start taking things out of the bid to meet what we needed to on the money that was available or, and it wasn't, and actually it's not even that it wasn't the money wasn't available. It was just the way that the approval system works. And, and so, so we, we became for some of this, our own subcontract or our own contractor. So we have someone who's doing the build, but then we have a different group that is installing cabinets and the changes that we made on cabinets from a, 
um, from a functionality and a look uh, standpoint, didn't get reflected in an updated plan for where the lights went. Um, and so, so it, it's kind of like you start, you start from the base and then you add these layers on. And if you change anything on that last layer, then you have to kind of go back through, through the, the layers to, to update. And that, that didn't happen. Fortunately, it's like an easy fix because you can like take lights we have a big open ceiling and you can take lights and move them. I say that relatively easy, not being an electrician, knowing nothing about how to do that. But, but they're like, Oh yeah, yeah, no, no problem. Um, taking it down is, is not an issue. Then the question becomes now, where do you want us to put it? Um, and then that, that took, that takes time. Um, and cause there are, it's not, it's not just me. That's, that's like, this is not just my, my kitchen passion project. There's couple others on the project who, um, who are, you know, we, we, I guess we, we make up the executive team on, on building and making decisions. And, um, and I have certain things that I, I think about for my use standpoint and Carolyn, uh, Carolyn Dunn, my, my department head who's, um, who's also, uh, part, you know, been driving this, this process. Um, she, she, ha- she's also a user and has different, you know, different thoughts. So we, we both, we kind of have to come together and be like, this is where we think the light should go. Um, and then we talk back through the, the process of the contractor and the subcontractor or the ele- electricians and, and the architect. And, and then everyone kind of nods their heads and it, and it gets done. Um, but that, that process is not like, I really, I, and naively went into this 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 kitchen build with like, hey, well, I have a great idea. Let's build some kitchens, and then I'm going to use the kitchens and the the stuff in between. Like this idea of let's build some kitchens to me using the kitchens will just get filled in by someone else, and it doesn't doesn't really like in this case work that way. And for for a good reason because there would have been decisions made. No one knows exactly how. I want to use them or how Carolyn wants to use them or how, um, a couple other faculty members who are in, in, who want to use them, you want to use them and we want to have input on what it looks like and what the feels like all the way through. And if um, this is not just a normal kitchen, this is like a research kitchen, right? So, right. so, and the way that you're going to use it for research is different than the way Carolyn's going to use it for research is different than what a normal person would want in their home kitchen, et cetera, yes. et cetera. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you, you nailed it. Yeah. And, and it's, um, at it, what, what is really great is that at the end of it, um, it will be, um, like it's all, it's all worth it, right? Like all the, all the work and sort of the, the process of, of making it goes, um, makes, makes things really, really awesome in the end. Cause we'll be able to walk in there and use them and, and know like, uh, how, why we made the decision that we did. And, and, you know, some of it is about like where the hood gets placed for vents because we have a, a vision of cameras, um, like what we want a camera frame to look like when we're producing a video for YouTube around food safety in the kitchen. And, and it's like, wow, I'm so glad that we, we, we raised that, that hood up those extra four inches that we could, um, even, you know, because it, it'll, it'll make that video so much better as the person who's creating it or, you know, like weird, weird little things like that. Um, so it's, it is definitely this like huge passion project and, and becomes like a, um, 
uh, a legacy because once you know at some point i'm gonna you know retire and leave and you know leave nc state i'm not going anywhere else but leave and and just like retire to my garden um of which it's not that's even not even likely because i don't i don't like gardening um but i'll retire somewhere um and then someone else will use these kitchens right like like 30 years 20 years from now whatever it is and and the stuff the decisions that we made today may be the right ones for 20 years from now or they may get things might change and once you get in using them we may want to change them and um but it's it's very cool to be like hey we we're building this thing and it's it's a thing that is unique and it doesn't really exist in the same way um in in other in other setups and people have elements of this but not all in one spot and we're we're able to customize it to exactly how we want to use it and then and then use it for you know how many years that that were that were there um so it's very cool yeah you know this is reminding me a little bit of um of good eats which we are we're watching um uh which is the alton brown uh show um and right. and it's uh he's got a new version called good eats reloaded but before he produces new episodes he's going to go back and fix uh problems in the in the old episodes but one of the things that uh, my wife was telling me about it or, or i think i think it was a conversation we were having um where basically he shot the first two seasons in his home kitchen, but then there were complaints about all the trucks and all the stuff at his house. And so then he had to put, make it in a studio. But, and so what they essentially did was they rebuilt his home kitchen in the studio so that they could keep the, the background and everything the same. And your comments about, well, getting the frame right in the YouTube video just made me, made me think of that. Like when you start doing these things, you're not really always cons- sure where they're going to go. And sometimes they go in an interesting direction and interesting constraints come up and then you have to kind of go with it. It's sort of like evolution, right? I mean, it's like there's, there's a reason why things are the way that they are and it's not always sensible, but that's what you're stuck with. <laughs> right, right. I mean, and let me, let me give you a really, uh, uh, clear example of that today. So, so when I was talking to the contractor this morning, the plumbers finished, um, last Friday, right before the break. Um, and I was in, um, in Baltimore all day. So I, I, this is the first time I had seen the kitchen since like last Thursday, almost a week. And so, so, uh, contractor Mike says, um, the, we got to move these refrigerators. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. No, he's, he's like, so the plumbers are here, and the only place that they could put the water turnoff for this whole kitchen is here. And he walks me into, we have a laundry room, and there's a ceiling tile that's mi- that's missing. And he's like, it's above this stackable laundry unit. And he's like, you need to get a ladder, because if, if a leak happens in here, you're going to need to turn it off. Right. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's really like, yeah, he's like, this is not the most ideal place for it, but this is where the water comes into the, comes into this, uh, space. So it's a logical place so where, yeah, because, because you, yeah. you want to put the, you want to put the turnoff as close to the entry point as possible. Right, right. right. And, and he's like, so you're going to need a ladder. And, and now I have this piece of information that I need to, like, I, I'm the only one who knows this right now. Not, not that I'm, you know, I'm not hoarding this information, but as part of this, we, we well, have, here, but, uh, yeah, here's the thing. If you, if you forget that you're yeah. the only one, like someday there's going to be a leak and there won't be a ladder because you forgot to write down ladder or to talk right. to the ladder contractor to order the ladder from the ladder department. <laughs> Right. And, and someone who's in the use of it is going to be like, hey, there's a leak. We need to turn the water off. Where's the water? And oh, everyone's going wait, to we need a jump. we need a ladder. Um, yeah. Wait. So somebody here, wait, somebody get a purchase order so we can go buy a ladder. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then let's <laughs> and then this kitchen floods. 
And then the kitchen fl- – exactly. All of that stuff is like um, – yeah, things that, that you're, you're kind of pre- presented with, like things that you don't think about. Like, oh, it would be really convenient to have the water – you know, coming in at a lower level, maybe in a cabinet that we could open up and see. Um, and, and here it's, uh, it's, you know, that's, that's not the case. And, and it's like you said, but you're kind of stuck with it because that's the way it was, right? Like you're, you don't, I don't, I didn't now looking at it. Um, it would have been great to have it somewhere else, but, but we're, but we don't. So, so like, that's, that's the deal. Um, so it's like fun. I mean, fun things like that. Uh, so we're, we're getting there. We have a launch on February 1st, which is a hard, that's a hard out. Like the things are, are done. And that, and right now, um, you know, there, there are little, little pieces of electric stuff that needs to be finished this week. And, um, the, the, uh, the floor needs to be sealed and that's next week. And then we can start moving in, um, uh, furniture and, and that's all arriving, uh, I guess that's the yeah next next Tuesday and Wednesday, and then um, we you know one one of the things that I, I haven't really gotten into all the details on the on the podcast, but w- one of w- one of the drivers for me on this uh, on building this kitchen um, has been to to build a space where where I can do and others can do observation work on food handling. And in a way that we've been, we've been doing projects and I have talked about these a little bit, but we've been doing projects, um, uh, partnering with RTI, um, a con you know, contracts with, um, with food safety, uh, inspection service, USDA's FSIS, uh, on looking at food handling in, in, in how consumers handle food. And we've been doing these kind of in an ad hoc setting, going to kitchens sometimes, you know, in renting apartments and sometimes, um, uh, doing it at extension kitchens and then setting up these, oh, like, we, we talked about this on an episode bit, yeah. where we talked about this apartment that you're renting for, yeah, to have the really kitchens. Creepy yeah. We, yeah. That we tell people to come to these kitchens and, and no, no one's going to like, there's no serial killer here. It's everything's cool. Just, we just want you to, you know, come in and handle these chicken thighs. Um, and, <laughs> here, right. here, put on this apron, <laughs> put on this apron, grab these, yeah, grab this chicken. Okay, good. Um, so we, okay, uh, now do that again slower. <laughs> yeah, yeah slower. So we didn't, we didn't get it. We didn't get it. Um, <laughs> it's, there's some weird, like fetish site that's already popped up about e- this. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, but we do this with like tripods and duct tape of oh, right, right. cameras and, and so, so it's like really ad hoc. And now, now we have this facility to be able to do, to do all of that or we, or we will. And, and so running, like, that's the other thing that has to happen, um, next week is, is we've got, you know, we, we have the kitchens built, they become the shell and now we run AV wire with a whole bunch of video cameras, like eight per kitchen that all feeds into a central, um, observation room where we can watch these events in real time. Did you ever watch, did you ever see the movie? Uh, I think it's sliver. I think that's what it's called back in, back in the nineties. It's a, it's a William Baldwin movie. No, but I've heard of it. Okay. So, so this movie, I, in fact, so many times I think about what we're doing and I think of this movie and it's not the same. So let me read, let me read from the Wikipedia page. Uh, Sliver is a 1993 erotic f- thriller based on an Ira Lev- Leverin novel of the same name about a mysterious occurrences in a privately owned New York high rise Sliver building. 
Um, and and so, no spoiler alert, but this is a, a you know 1993 movie. Um, uh, William Baldwin, who's a tenant, has this room where he walks in, and 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 it's like the reveal of the movie early on, and he flips a switch, and then they're like all these walls of video screens where he's watching people in their apartments. Um, that's what I think our control room, our observation room is like. <laughs> Except not in a creepy way. Right, right, right. Not in well, a in a little way. bit of a creepy way. Yeah, yeah. As owner of 113, let me read again, uh, that's the apartment number, Zeke installed a comprehensive video surveillance system throughout the building, allowing him to spy on all of the tenants of 113 in his own secret surveillance room. So that's what we're building, the sliver room. Nice. Uh, and, <laughs> well, and we're yeah, <laughs> and, and and this is this is not a particularly good movie. I think it got thirteen percent on Rotten Tomatoes. So uh, don't don't go out and watch this movie um, because number one, it's not representative of what Ben is doing, and number two, it's not a very good movie. Apparently, it was. It did. It's true. It was not. It did not win any Golden Raspberry Awards, but it was nominated for all of them: worst picture, worst director, worst screenplay, worst actor, worst actress, worst supporting actor, and worst supporting actress. Um, I do, it was one of the, I do remember watching this movie. Um, and I didn't, I mean, I, I don't, I didn't think it was that bad, but, but I was uh, 15 at the time and, and, uh, 15 year olds, uh, watching erotic thrillers is what, uh, you know, that's what it's what all about. You do. Yeah. <laughs> You're a 13 year old boy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so anyway, we're, we're, um, that's the next step is, is running all this, like all all this wire and, um, setting up the video cameras and then setting up the process on how we broadcast. So we have to do all of that, really have it all functional and operational by February 1st. So January is also going to be heavy, heavy kitchen time. Uh, but it's, it's a little more of the fun stuff now. Like, and, and, you know, when I was, when I was talking about here, are the, um, the, all those little decisions take up a lot of time. We're at, at the end, we're going to have all those decisions of, I have eight camera feeds where, what angles do we need? Right? So someone's going to be in the observation room and we're going to set up the feed and be like, okay, are we able to get someone's hands? If they do this, what about now? How about now? And making sure that we adjust those, um, those camera fields, um, to, uh, to, to capture what we want. I um so I just sorry I just have to read you the critics consensus on Rotten Tomatoes on Sliver. Sliver is an absurd <laughs> I think we've captured it in our discussion but uh, <laughs> Sliver is an absurd erotic thriller with techno babble and posits prime Sharon Stone as a professional book nerd. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Um it was uh, it was uh, supposed to coincide with the theatrical release of uh, Basic Instinct 2 when the uh um when Sliver came out on DVD, because it's kind of like Basic Instinct too, I guess. Um, ah, yeah, it was. Uh, it's good. Um, so, so anyway, that's the that's the kitchen story, and it's I one one of the things I don't one of the things I I you know sort of going back in in early early time of my career, uh, something that that was important to me. Um, was, you, you know, I, I did all, I did some, some work when I was in graduate school on putting up video cameras in kitchens yeah. and right. So that yeah. was, that was the thing that I was doing. Mm-hmm. And a couple other people had, had done it before. And, yep. um, we talked a little bit about this. Chris Griffith, um, had a, has a facility, had a facility. He's no longer at, um, and in fact, the university who's at, it's not even called this, but at Cardiff Metro with, um, the, the good David Lloyd and, and, uh, as many colleagues, uh, Ellen Evans, 
um, uh, I think about uh, folks that, that carried on this this work. Um, uh, Liz Redman really really pioneered this. Got into a, uh, a situation of a methodology of how can we record and then note what actions are people doing in a kitchen, and and they really that that group there really developed this and. Um, what, what I wanted to, to bring to the, to the literature was, um, was trying to tell the story of here, let's, let's publish the methodology paper of video observation in commercial kitchens. Um, so I, I wrote an article for FPT food protection trends back in like 2011, maybe let me see if we can find this and it's video observation. Anyway, well, um, I, I found the barf blog post entitled, I like stories and I'm a food safety voyeur from uh, yep, June 4th, uh, 2010 by Ben Chapman. There you go. There you go. That's, that's it. Um, uh, yeah. So I really, I, I, what I wanted to be able to do was, um, I don't want to be the only one doing observation research. I find it so useful. I think that there's, um, and, and that sounds really pretentious cause I wasn't the only one doing it, but I wanted more people to do it. Yes. Um, and like, you, you know what I'm saying? Like it's there and there, there were, there were other papers that were out there and, um, uh, Christine Brune, who, who recently, recently retired, whom recently retired, who I don't know, uh, in, at UC Davis, uh, did some great observation work in people's kitchens using video setup and coding it and the whole intricacies of, of doing it. I, I want people to share more about that. And this is kind of the next progression for me is I want to write, like, how do you build this facility? Like what, yeah. what should it look like? Yeah. Lessons um, learned. Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, that's, that's the sort of in the back of my mind as we reflect at the end of the year on things to, to write and put on our writing buddies list. Um, I, I want, I, I want to, to share this because I, I think there's, there's value for, uh, for folks like you, there's value for folks like me in more what do people actually do um, work, whether it's in a home kitchen, I think, or in a in a commercial setting or in a processing plant. Um, I, I think it, it helps us understand what the risks are so much better. Well, and, and, more, and you know what I <clears throat> what I really need right now. And if I could if I had money and we could just instantly do this, what I would love to hire you to do is to bring people into your kitchen with small children and then give them a bag of flour and a recipe and say, hey, bake some cookies. And then what I want to watch is where does the flour go, right? Yeah. And what does the kid do? Because that's, I mean, we're, we're in the, I would say the mid to end stages of, of, a, of a, a contract looking at flour risk assessment and a big question mark at the end. And we're going to, you know, obviously if you're good at risk assessment, you get good at just like making stuff up, like to say, okay, well this, we don't really know what happens here, but here's some assumptions about what happens. And, and that's what we're doing right now for, for flour cross-contamination. But, but it would be great to have actual data on like when people are baking, what do they do with their hands and the flour and what, and I'm specifically interested because I think there, there's a higher risk there. Like, what are the kids doing? Are they running around? Are they touching the flower? You know, like all of those those potential cross contamination points. Um, and there's just no database on that, right? And, right. And one study would be better than no studies. Would be a lot better than no studies. And what we really need is a whole bunch of different studies. But uh, in the meantime, I'm just going to make some assumptions, and then we'll come back later and, and do the studies so we can we can 
you know get the data right but but at least it, it will be it will be something right but uh, but it would be so much better to have some data and the only way you're going to get data is to do that kind of work that you're talking about yeah no absolutely and, that, and that's that that's really one of the big selling points as we as we talk to people internally to the university and externally when we were raising funds for this for this project for this facility was was to kind of kind of capture exactly what, what what you just said and said say we we have the we have the right people here to do this kind of work right like and and it and it's broader than um that than just food safety. It's like, how do people make decisions when they're cooking around, um, portion sizes mm. and how do like, like how do, how do we, um, what kind of variability if you give someone, you know, stepping into the nutrition side of things a little bit, but if you give somebody, um, a recipe and you say, here are a list of substitutions that you could use for, um, that would make this more nutritious or more or healthy or better, you know, better choices. Um, when people get into the kitchen, how do they, how do they actually do that? And what are the decisions they make there? And what's the best way to present that information? And so from a communication standpoint, there's sort of endless, uh, types of questions we can ask, but, but I, I think the, what really, um, what I think got our college, administration on board was to be able to, to say, look, there, there are, um, uh, competitive grants and contracts out there to do this type of stuff. And we're doing it in an ad hoc way. And if we can, if we can have a one page boilerplate, here's the facility that we're doing this in that makes us more competitive than anybody else that's out there. Cause we have a, we, we not only have the right people or people that are interested in it, that are publishing in this area that are, that are doing this work, that are answering these questions, but we also have this like facility that doesn't exist anywhere else. Um, and, and so, so give us money to do flower work. Yeah. Well, and, <laughs> um, and, and yeah. yeah. And, and the more, the more you do that work, the more your reputation grows. I mean, it's just, it's, it just, it just makes sense. And it's good. It's good that you have the support of the administration and the, and that it's not, and it's not just obviously you and I are interested in the food safety aspects, but you're right. There's other, there's other aspects of this and there's other things that this, this space could be used for that would benefit the whole, the college and, and the university. So it's good that it's good that you have that support from administration. It's huge. Like it, I really like it is as, as much as, uh, as when you're in the academic world, we, we can always complain about against or about administration and bureaucracy in, in this project. Um, there, there has been really nothing but support through the entire system. Like once I, I think it, you know, it, it's like when we were talking a couple episodes ago about, um, uh, you know, the Romaine um, story and, and it happening or happening around Thanksgiving, there's a connection to people when you can describe like the types of things like, Hey, we want to know how people use a thermometer when they're cooking Turkey on Thanksgiving there, there's an instant connection to, it doesn't matter who, whom it is. People have that, um, it, have an experience about a Thanksgiving meal, right? Like, and so you can tell you it's, it's an easy sell to, to be able to show here are the types of things that we're going to do in this, in this area. And then to get, um, and you know, administration on board and excited about that became even easier because not only do they see the, 
extension and research and, and teaching applications of it, but they had a personal experience with food safety or food handling or food preparation. Um, and, and it's, I mean, that, that is, um, it, it, it is, it, we have not, it, it is easy to get people excited about it because of that. And, and the support's been phenomenal. Amazing. Could not have like, we wouldn't be looking at fixtures, uh, today if, if it wasn't for, for that support. So it's, it's a pretty, it's been a pretty cool story from start to finish. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, that's, that's kitchen, that's kitchen t- safety talk. Uh, <laughs> um, and I, and I have to apologize cause you know, the, I wanted to give you the, the, the full story on the, on the background. Cause I've been like not hitting deadlines in this morning. Um, we were trying to finish start early cause we're, you and I are both in, in holiday mode. And as you mentioned, you're in a, in a hotel and you're hanging out with family and, and my same thing here. So I was, uh, I was a little bit late later than, um, I had promised, uh, cause I got wrapped up in kitchen stuff and it, it won't be that way forever. I'll be, I'll, I'll have other things that I'll be late because of. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And we all know, we all know your system for doing email, uh, which yeah. is that if it falls off the first screen, it's probably not going to get answered. So, uh, you know, it's okay. Yeah. You just got to roll with it. So, Hey, so I want to move, speaking of email, uh, I want to move into some, some listener, it's not really listener feedback, but you and I will often talk about extension questions that we get. And this was a great question. This came in from, uh, my colleague, uh, Daryl Minch, who's, uh, uh, family and, cons- and community health sciences educator um, uh, in in New Jersey, and she says, "Hi, a coworker told me that someone who works in a hospital says says said that water bottle filling stations found in schools and public places transfer a lot of bacteria or other pathogens. Do you have any information if it's true or not? A lot of places are installing them. I've used them. Thanks, and no rush. And and yeah, it's." Um, these, this, this was a great question because I knew I had seen some stuff about this. Um, and I, so I, first thing I did was of course, because, you know, I'm uh, always going to assume that there's some science. Uh, I did some, uh, a Google scholar search, uh, for water bottle microbiology and water bottle filling station microbiology. And I, I couldn't find anything. Um, now, it turns out that there is a report um, that was not peer-reviewed that made some waves recently, and it comes from the the place where I always go for all of my uh, cutting-edge science, a website called treadmillreviews.net, <laughs> which has an article. Uh, the, uh, the the stub is, uh, uh, is a water bottle germs revealed. Um, if you read to the end of this article, what you find out, Ben, is they did a lot of research here. They swabbed three water bottles. Okay. All three. All three with uh, th- oh, sorry, th- three water bottles uh, for each different type of water bottle. So, so n- not three water bottles, Ben. Four types. Okay, screw top, slide top, squeeze top, and straw top. That was twelve swabs that they did. They did. That's like. <laughs> That's that's more than it's more than the number of sponges in that in that German study that got me so upset and got me a guest spot on uh, Dubai Friday. Um, so anyway, um, so we'll link to that. Uh, there's an article from Huffington Post, uh, which links to another article, uh, which mentions the Canadian Journal of Public Health uh, article, which took 76 bo- samples of water bottles used by school students. Um, but of course, uh, as is my one of my pet peeves, um, if you are going to publish stuff in um, like the popular press and you're going to talk about a scientific study, like give us a link to the study. So eventually, yeah, yeah. eventually, I did find. Uh, 
the study. Um, the Canadian Journal of Public Health study, which sampled 76 water bottles, comes from 2002. So, um, and it's not that great a study, hence the reason why it was probably published in the Canadian Journal of Public Health, which is not, you know, not not necessarily a fantastic journal. Um, uh, basically, the, the, the punchline of that study is, quote, uh, most water bottles have few, if any, bacteria, and some water bottles can have a lot of bacteria. That's, end quote. That's the direct quote from me, not from the study. So so basically, it turns out, Ben, uh, water bottles don't have much bacteria, except for sometimes they do. Um, right, right. Well, and that, that Canadian Journal of Public Health um, uh, article, um, so it was, uh, I, I went through this yesterday as I was hanging out. And so this is in Calgary, Alberta. And I think the most, the most interesting part of this was they, um, they're trying to apply water bottle, um, like the sanitation of water bottles, uh, and, and, applying like drinking water standards to it, which that's not really built for that. Right. right. Like it's, right. it's not they weren't just looking at the water. They're looking at the bottle and it's, it does there. And right. Yeah, well, I mean, and if you even, yeah. if you, even if you were going to apply the drinking water standard, you wouldn't apply it to the bottle. You would, you would, right. put, we would put water into the bottle, dispense the water into something and then measure that against the drinking water standard. Right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that was, yeah. Thank you for articulating what I had like, <laughs> problem with, which was you're, you're looking at the wrong thing. You're not, you can't, yeah, you can't apply that standard to what you're measuring. Well, you could, but it would be stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Just don't do it. Don't do it. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the, and, and so that's like where that, yeah, it came from. Interesting. Um, So anyway, so, so thanks to Daryl for that great question. Um, oh, and then the other, the other piece, just to, to close the close the link on this, that study from the Canadian Journal of Public Health was cited 16 times, um, but none of those citations were really about that particular topic. And so my, my response back to Daryl is, I think the burden is on your coworker to actually provide some data, because I did what I think was a fairly thorough search. And, and I do remember this treadmills, um, this treadmills.net uh, article that, that came up. Um, let's see. Oh, and uh, yeah, the, the title, the title on the website is a look under the cap water bottle germs revealed. So, um, uh, I did see that, that, uh, come across my desk, uh, some time ago when that first came out, but really there's just, there's nothing out there. There's just no, there's no data out there. No. And, and this is, um, this, a uh, question from Daryl made me think about um, some work that that we did looking at norovirus outbreaks. Um, one of my former students, Katie Overby, um, did a, um, a a review of um, what what was out there in the in the press around um, norovirus outbreaks and water fountains popped up as something like that was. That, that has been pushed out there as, as a risk factor using a water fountain in a school, um, was, has thought, has, has been thought to be, uh, a, a transmission point with no, with no data. Like it's, it, it's, we can't find the start of it. It, it just keeps sort of popping up in media stories and it doesn't exist on sort of CDC's website as things you need to control during an outbreak. Um, but well, and, and you know what, you know what those media stories cite as their evidence? Right. This. Other media stories. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and right, it's just, right. it just and, goes and round it, and round. 
It does. And, and it's, it's fascinating because as I remember sitting in my office talking with Katie about this, going through the review and she's like, yeah, so water fountains seem to be a problem. And I was like, what, like, where, where did this come from? Like, do we have any data? Do we, can we find a epidemiologically that the water fountain was the source? She's like, no, it doesn't like, we don't know. She couldn't, she couldn't find it. She couldn't find where where everything where this whole water fountain uh, discussion came up, which is a little different from water bottle filling stations, but not too um, different though. Yeah, yeah, but not too different. Yeah, um, I use these water bottle filling stations a lot in my um, in my secondary job as a amateur hockey coach um, for uh, eight and ten year olds. Uh, for which I, I get paid uh, nothing, uh, just the the joy of of every once in a while a, a child crying because I take them off the ice. Or oh, kind of kind of the same as the podcast, except without yeah, yeah. the crying children. <laughs> <laughs> right, less crying children. Um, but uh, but I use I I mean the water bottle filling stations are at every hockey arena, and what's really nice about the the more modern ones is that there it's a no touch. So I I stick my my bottle underneath, and then uh, a spigot just shoots water down directly into the to the water bottle. So I don't have to touch anything. There's no there's no nozzle that I might bump up against. And so I think because of that, they're even less likely to be um, to be a transmission source because. Really Really, what we're talking about is going back to some of the stuff that you you've uh, talked about in Rutgers Dining Hall, um, your Rutgers Dining Hall uh, study, ongoing right. study, looking at nozzle yep. um, uh, dispenser tips. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. You know, we we encountered this because we I was in I was in Hawaii giving a talk to the uh, ASM branch there and the hotel that we stayed in. What they're doing now, because there's a lot of concern about plastic waste, is we were given reusable plastic bottles and we were told that there's a station to refill them. And I, I don't I should have taken some pictures, but but I think the way the station worked, it was the same sort of thing. You push a button and it, it dispenses it into the into the the water bottle. Um, and I think there might even have been like a UV light that came on, like you see at the barber shop, you know, like when for oh wow, you know, I mean, and so I don't know if it was UV, yeah. but it was certainly purple colored. <laughs> so <laughs> Purple lights. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So these, this, 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 and this is good, right? I mean, we want, and we see, I see these in the airports. I see them all the time. We, we want to people to, we, you know, we want to get, you know, reduce the amount of plastic waste that people generate from these plastic water bottles. And so we want uh, refillable ones and we want them to be sanitary and we want the, the fountains to be sanitary. But yeah, it, it doesn't, there just doesn't seem to be any evidence that there's any, any significant risk posed by these things um, at all. Yeah, yeah. No, ab- absolutely. Um, well, uh, moving on to, to more listener feedback, uh, we, we got uh, a message from uh, Deep, Deep Kimchi, uh, but uh, his uh, name is also uh, Robert W. He said, uh, share all uh, details freely. Uh, says, uh, hello, I'm a fan of the podcast. Appreciate you guys responding to the messages. I've been trying to expand my knowledge on fermented products right now, specifically kimchi and how best to account for potential um, low risk of foodborne illness. I happened across a brief study from British Columbia Institute of Technology um, by Daniel Park uh, and colleagues. And he showed the link. Um, although the study is brief, I found the discussion about the rate of pH drop and the public health perception interesting. The only outbreak I'm familiar with is the 2012 South Korea E. coli uh, 0120 um, uh, and uh, 01, yeah, 
0120 and 099 uh, incidents. My understanding was a quick two-day ferment that probably did not drop pH significant in that time or for long enough to maybe reduce the amount of E. coli present because the source was inconclusive. It may have been contaminated pre- or post-process. Um, and then uh, previous studies shared by Ben, another episode from Fred Bright and Jane Caldwell uh, showed time and days to achieve a five-log reduction in certain uh, pH, which is the FDA standard for acidified pickle products. Um, so the question is, would it be reasonable to have a whole time for finished kimchi product based on the product's pH and time it would take to achieve five-log reduction? I'm assuming E. coli 0157 accounts for all other hazards, which seems like a big assumption. Is a 3.5% salt concentration a good minimum standard for a kimchi recipe? This is from the phase salt minimum in the fish and fishery products hazards control guide. Do you know of any states whose public health officials have a good way of evaluating fermented foods or at least kimchi? I've also heard that South Korea has done uh, studies on the destruction of E. coli strains over time in kimchi. Do you know those or similar studies? Thanks. Um, and I'm going to, uh, I'll weigh in on this and, and you, um, you answered, uh, deep kimchi's question, uh, over email, but, uh, and then, uh, left this in for me, which was, I think Ben may have some expertise with this based on his activities with North Carolina variance committee and he's CC'd here and can weigh in. And so I did not weigh in, uh, via email, uh, cause of the kitchens. Uh, that's my standard, <laughs> uh, response. Um, and, uh, but I, I will, I will right now. And I, I think that the, the biggest, the biggest thing is we've investigated this, um, as part of the, the variance committee is, is how long does it take for the pH to drop and what's that final pH? And you, uh, Don, you, you sent uh, deep kimchi, um, uh, link to, uh, two documents that we that we use highly in our evaluations. One from Colorado State from um, Marisa Bunning and and colleagues, um, and another one from Wisconsin from I think it's Barb Barbingham, um, and. So they, in both of those um, uh, documents, they they really talk about a, a salt concentration as low as two percent. And what you highlight is that um, that that salt concentration is needed to select for the lactic acid fermenting bacteria. And in its no kimchi is. Um, the, on its surface, no difference from from what we do in other fermented pickle products. The thing that gets really interesting, and this is after talking to, to Fred Bright about it um, quite a bit, uh, is that the variability on salt concentration is really, really high with with something like kimchi. So, so setting a base of like two percent uh, by weight is is important because you may have individuals who who prefer to have um uh, from a taste standpoint a not very salty and a not very tangy kimchi and i know that those sound like loosey-goosey kind of terms because that's what they are so so what does that what does that mean well it could be as little as one percent or even half percent salt uh concentration and it could be a light fermentation of one or two days um, and that's where I think things get really, really interesting. And by interesting, I mean risky. Um, I, I often tell a story about one of my neighbors who um, who was into kimchi and told me that he was making kimchi because it's really expensive to buy it at Whole Foods, which is where he was getting it. And so I was like, this is great. How are you making it? Tell me about it. Because as the inquisitive microbiologist, uh, or at least a uh, fakey microbiologist, whatever I am, um, I was like, hey, uh, I'm really interested in what you're doing. 
And so he, was, he told me that he would shred up some cabbage and peppers and onions and uh, packed it with um, water and some salt and then just put like a screw top on a, jar, a mason jar and put it in his, um, in his windowsill and, and would open it up every couple of days to see what it smelled like. And if it smelled like the kimchi that he bought, then that's when he would eat it. And I was like, oh, that, that sounds really risky. How much salt are you putting in there? And he's like, I don't know, this much. And I, you can't because the beauty of radio is you you're, can't you're see holding, what I'm doing, You're holding up your hands in a cup shape. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm I'm holding up my hands in like a little teaspoon shape. Like, oh, like no. I'm, I'm dabbing a little bit of teaspoon. He's oh, like, I don't no. really like it salty. Um, oh, no. Do you like it dangerous? <laughs> yeah. So so this is I mean, this is the thing that I've talked to Fred about is even with the. Um, and, and Elizabeth Andrus, um, our, our you know, good friend at, um, at University of Georgia, National Center for Home Food Preservation, she, she and I have talked in, about this and, and you, you've been involved in some of these conversations. When it comes to preserving and fermenting, it's more like baking than cooking. Right. Like like baking yes. is, is, yes. Is, is a science that's so precise. And if you mess it up, you're not going to get a good cake. Ooh. And that's a, a, that's a, a really good analogy. I like, I like that. It only works for people that are bakers, (laughs) but it's a really good analogy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I also, I'm, I'm sure I stole that from, from Elizabeth where, um, it, you can't, you, you can, you can't deviate from these recipes and expect to get the, the product that you're thinking of. And unlike a cake, you you're not getting something that that doesn't turn into kimchi. What you're getting is a real potential for um, for foodborne pathogens. And and I agree with with deep kimchi with with Robert's thought here is um, 0157 um, is something that we worry about. And 0157 is acid to- can be acid tolerant. And so this whole time really matters. Um, one of the things that um, uh, that that Fred has talked about is refrigeration of these products from a listeria standpoint actually helps preserve listeria. Um, and I hope I get this right and I can, I'll confirm with him when, when I talk, but, but he, he talks about a waxy layer, um, why listeria, uh, gr- can continue to grow in refrigeration temperatures without acid. It has to do with the morphology of it and that it, when it's cold, it builds this waxy layer and it allows it to, to still have nutrients come in. And that waxy layer also can block the acid. So he, he, so he, he's, he talked about that if you want, if, if you want Listeria to die, don't refrigerate it because in its, um, you know, in its non-waxy layer state, um, the the acid will be able to penetrate the cell, the cell wall. Um, well, and the w- the way that I explain this, and this this doesn't involve the use of the phrase waxy state, which which I think makes it seem more <laughs> more scientific than it is, is <laughs> if you just think about it, um, basically reactions happen faster at higher temperatures, and so if you have higher temperatures and you have growth. And conditions that allow growth, higher temperatures are going to allow for faster growth. If you have conditions that promote the inactivation of the organism, higher temperatures are going to lead to faster inactivation. And so E. coli uh, won't survive in apple cider, but it will survive a whole lot better in cold apple cider because in cold apple cider, the reaction kinetics are slowed down. Whereas if you want it to, if, if you know it's going to die in apple cider or apple juice, you raise the temperature, those inactivation kinetics happen faster. So that's, I, that's my explanation without the use of waxy yeah. layers. <laughs> well, I think the waxy state is the way to go. Uh, <laughs> is that like the deep but, state? 
It's like the deep state. Yeah, it's in the dark web. It's the waxy state. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, I, I, that's that, that's exactly it. Is it, the we we can we can often look to biology on how to how to do this better um, and and safer. Um, but the like you know, sort of going back to the conversations I've had with Fred is that you got all this variability and how people measure brine concentrations. Even that has variability because. Um, Two percent. So if we look at this, you know, two points, you know, three point five percent is what um, Deep Kimchi is asking about. Two percent is the lowest that Colorado State uh, has looked at, and and Wisconsin says two point two five percent. Measuring that, and this is something that that, that you know, Linda, our good friend Linda Harris, um, uh, Deep Almond, uh, has talked about um, it, offline with with me quite a bit is um, how we measure that. If it's two percent by volume or two percent by weight, that really matters in in this because we're we have to be really precise. So anyway, it, it comes down to I, I think if you and, and this is where we've defaulted in in our kimchi variance uh, validation or at least uh, reviewing validation is if you can give me a paper that shows the concentration and you're checking that pH. Um, then, then the, I will vote for it to be approved. And I'm just one vote, uh, on this, uh, on this variance committee. But once you deviate from these recipes, like a, like a baker, um, can't do, um, then, then kind of all bets are, are off. And so unfortunately when it comes to kimchi, kimchi is like hamburger, um, where it, you know, everyone makes them kind of differently and there's lots of different ingredients that you can put in there. And some people put breadcrumbs and other people just do raw meat and, and some are thick and some are, are thin. Um, it's, it's a class of foods, not a specific food. And so you, you can't just take a, uh, um, uh, of kimchi on face value because what I put in my kimchi is going to be different from what other people do it and how we ferment. It's going to be different. So having what we kind of require people to do is having, um, uh, sort of daily checks on pH and, um, knowing about what the temperature is and being able to, um, to use, um, growth tables to say, if you do this and you do this, uh, correctly, and it's really following those recipes that Colorado State and University of Wisconsin have, um, then, then yeah, we'll approve this, this process, uh, or, or, and I, I, I don't have the power to approve. I will vote for it right. um, if, if you can provide the data. Well, and I would say, too, um, measuring brine con- concentration sounds like a bad idea. Doing it by volume sounds like a good idea. And what bakers do, my understanding, is the best way to do it is by weight. And I would say, exactly. like, that's how you should – you don't even try to make a kimchi recipe unless you're going to weigh out the cabbage or and or the other ingredients and weigh out the salt and, and, and start from that. And, and then yeah. also make sure that it's evenly mixed because what you don't want is you don't want, um, you know, uh, salty spots and, and less salty spots. And then, yeah, for sure, if you want to do this commercially, get a pH meter or I guess you could use pH paper as long as you're willing to uh, over, you know, overcompensate the same way we overcompensate if you got to use pH paper if you're making uh, acidified foods, right? Which is, I think it has to be, um, it only, if, if the, uh, uh, you can only use pH paper if the pH is four or below. So, and I don't know, I don't know what the p- final pH of kimchi is, if you could even do that. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I would just say, don't just, just do it by weight because that's going to be the least error prone, right? Yep. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And 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 stick to stick to the recipes, right? Um, that are out there. 
Um, and, and there's and there's probably places that you can you can vary it like like with kimchi you you know you use cabbage and you can use some other vegetables right like that's probably okay um, I would be careful about using large chunks that you don't get the salt equilibration or the pH equilibration but you know there's and again there's probably anyway this is this is this is why I think it's such a shame that Elizabeth Center does not have funding anymore um, yeah uh, because we really need uh, good science based information on this on this kind of stuff for home home food preparation and you know the commercial stuff it'll get it'll get handled by variance committees and and reviews and stuff like that but we really need you know it would be it would be great if we had more advice to give to consumers that wanted to make their own their home home kimchi yeah um before we leave the um the deep kimchi question uh i want to add there there was um so um um Robert mentioned uh, an outbreak from uh, from Japan in, in two, or sorry in um, 2012 uh, in South Korea. I think there was another outbreak of 0157 um, in Japan, um, and I'll find the link for show notes on that. Uh, but there was something also that happened not soon after I, I came to NC State um, uh, of two people in Virginia, and I can't remember if it was Richmond or um, Danville or somewhere, but a, um, a, a, a doctor and his wife died uh, from uh, bot toxin linked mm-hmm. to kimchi. And the kimchi, this was a really interesting story. And, and actually, um, uh, our, our friend uh, Joel Eifert uh, from Virginia Tech initially told me about this and I've talked to a couple of other public health regulators in Virginia to sort of capture this story a little bit or investigators. Um, and there was a couple of news stories and maybe I can find a link for this for show notes, but the, the story that I remember was there were members of a like kimchi exchange club and had, um, had made kimchi and, and sent it by mail to someone or someone sent them kimchi by mail. Um, I can't remember exactly how, how it was, but it was kimchi that was incompletely fermented that was sealed and then transported by mail and held at room temperature. Um, and, and so it, it was, it was essentially, um, a low, low salt concentration. The pH was still high. And then this, this stuff sat at room temperature for quite some time. Um, and they ate it and then, died uh from it and so i'll see if i can find the um the the link but that's that i mean there's the biggest consequence right like i mean 0157 is terrible but as i've shared on the podcast and on the blog many times there's nothing that scares me more than botulism um and i'm and i'm irrationally ever an irrational fear um uh, uh, of it uh because you know you've got you 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 just you know never probably recover from it even if you get anti uh, the uh, antitoxin quickly. So yeah, so it's out I, there, I, and I'll see if I can find it. Yeah, I would be really leery of any kind of a club where people are making food and sending it to each other via the mail. That just sounds uh, like trouble to me. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, you agree. It, yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, um, but uh, but but Don. Um, this comes back to the philosophy of uh, you know maybe one of our most uh, famous uh, uh, episodes of Hamsterdam. Um, <laughs> if people are going to join these mail clubs, we should at least get them to do it safely. Safely, right? Exactly. <laughs> oh, speaking of speaking of uh, just a brief a brief segue into 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 the last episode and 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 my my Christmas holidays. So I went uh, as we always do. We go to visit my my wife's aunt's um, family in Staten Island. I 
used to be Brooklyn, then they moved to Staten Island. Um, and uh, this year there was eggnog, and there was uh, eggnog made with raw eggs, and so I got a chance to do a little, a little impromptu, unrecorded food safety talk where I talked about the probability of illness from eggs, and um, you know, I had a little sip of eggnog and then made made the joke that somebody has to be the control and somebody has to be the case. <laughs> <laughs> I would have a small sip, so I would ca- qualify as the control. And I resisted the temptation to get out and start doing calculations about, you know, how many eggs did you use and uh, one over 3,333. And then, well, there's alcohol in there. And it's like, well, okay, that lowers the risk. And, you know, and the risk, and, you know, I, I used to use, I made statements right. like, well, the risk is relatively low and the alcohol lowers the risk. And I'm just going to have another glass of wine. Thanks. <laughs> Yeah, and the and the wines the wine should be fine. The wine should yeah. be fine because I brought it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, speaking of speaking of wine, that's not fine. Um, uh, this is not food safety related, but it is vaguely microbiological. So I I scored what I thought was an awesome bottle of vintage port from 1970 that I'm I'm actually looking at the bottle right now, and I went to open it last night, and I think it's bad. So I ordered oh. I ordered two. Uh, we'll see if the one that I left at home is any good. But uh, that the nice treat that I was bringing to my family uh, for to share is uh, is not going to happen. So. So so it goes, but uh, anyway, microorganisms, man, can't live with them. Can't live without them. Am I right? Well, probably uh, not, uh, because we need, <laughs> we need them in our intestines. Hey, so let's let's move um, from kimchi to sushi, okay? Yes, yes. So uh, this uh, this is from <laughs> this is from friend of the pod and friend in real life, uh, Caitlin Kasuli, who says, uh, "Please share all details freely." Um, uh, the message, uh, the header is sushi se- safety segment exclamation mark. I'm looking for more information on how to prepare, how to safely prepare sushi or other raw tuna containing products. This is something I typically prepare and eat at home because I don't trust people uh, regarding raw fish. Um, Good point, uh, Caitlin. In my reading, I've gathered that sashimi grade is not something that is clearly defined or FDA regulated, which is slightly concerning. I think you're right on that, Caitlin. I'm not a sushi expert, but I think that's correct. She says, the only information I can actually find about time-temperature combinations to get rid of parasites is here. And she cites uh, sushifact.com, um, uh, which is uh, information on um, uh, freezing uh, tuna. And she says, my best practice based on this information is to buy frozen tuna steaks at the store and use those I int- uh, and and use those if I intend to eat them raw. So uh, yeah, so so basically she's going to use those guidelines. Um, I suspect an even better practice would be to buy them and store them for a week in my freezer, but who really has time for that? Um, she says, my other concern was salmonella. I've seen this as an issue in the past. Uh, she says, I typically sear the outside of the tuna steak to help reduce the risk. Is this sufficient? Um, well, Caitlin, as you know, uh, it's all about risk, and uh, it's not n- not about sufficient or not sufficient. It's all about reduction in risk. Um, but yes, uh, so she says, I've always heard that like beefsteak, bacteria can't penetrate the inside of tuna steak, and so searing is all that's needed. Well, I don't know about all that's needed, but it certainly does reduce the risk. So yeah, so for sure, to get rid of parasites, you need to freeze it, um, and then it's a time temperature, or mostly time when it comes to, to frozen, um, and then you can sear the outside, and that's a, that's a good practice. Um, uh, the the outbreaks that I know of, or at least the outbreaks in recent memory, um, have been linked to uh, what is called uh, back scrape, uh, which is uh, is disgusting. Um, uh, sounds disgusting, even if it was microbiologically safe, which it is not. Um, and this is. Um, 
basically a process by which they take tuna off the bone. They, they literally scrape the tuna off the, the bone of the backbone of the tuna, and that's low-quality um, meat, which they put into, you know, mall-style mall sushi restaurant uh, sushi, not, not the fancy t- tuna uh, steaks that you get at a proper sushi restaurant. And so... Yeah, so um, uh, there, there's not a lot of information out there, obviously, as Caitlin uh, discovered and as, as I discovered as well. Um, and so really, th- those are your, really your two best practices. Make sure you freeze it to control parasites, which can be in the middle of the mus- mus- muscle, and then um, you know sear the outside to control any Vibrio and or Salmonella that might be on the outside. And beyond that, you know, uh, you, you you like sushi, you take your, take your chances. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, I want to highlight, um, from Caitlin's link, she linked to something, uh, at sushifact.com, um, sushifact.com links to, uh, seafood guidance documents from FDA and the time temperature, um, message. So they, they link to like a whole bunch of different stuff. Uh, but I will highlight that it, that this is actually, um, dictated, uh, dictated is the wrong word, talked about, uh, uh, provided in the food code, um, uh, under a section called parasite destruction for freezing under freezing and, uh, uh, for the nerds. Um, and I know this will get at least three listeners excited. It's uh, section, uh, three dash four Oh two dot one, one. Um, and those time temperature combinations that are shared at sushi, sushi fact come from that or are replicated at least there. And so this, as, as Caitlin mentioned, it, it takes some time, uh, frozen. So they, they provide three options and, and this is, um, referenced in the, uh, public health reasons, uh, annex part of the, the code. So I think this is probably the best available science frozen and stored at a temperature of minus 20 or below for a minimum of seven days in a freezer frozen at minus 35 or below until solid and stored at minus 35 for 15 hours or frozen at minus uh, 35. This is Celsius. Um, or for our, uh, uh, non Celsius brethren, uh, frozen at minus 31 Fahrenheit or below until solid and stored at minus 20 for a minimum of 24 hours. And so you, I mean, that's not something that I can do in my home. Well, and and I think home isn't home refrigerator isn't it minus twenty or is it not even that cold? It's not that cold. I mean, most are 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 set. Knowing after installing three uh, home uh, refrigerators last week, (laughs) got to install those refrigerators. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they are um, they are set to uh, um, uh, zero. uh, F. Uh, yeah, zero F, not minus, not minus thirty one F. Um, so, so it is, uh, it, which is about um, close to a minus twenty yeah. uh, Celsius. So it's, I mean, you you need so so actually this this comes up quite a bit uh, uh, working with with restaurants um, who want to do parasite destruction. They they really need to have a, a special um, if if they're not purchasing something that has been already frozen and thawed. Um, they, they need to, to, to purchase, there are pieces of equipment that you can get that commercially that do this. You can definitely try to turn your, your freezer down to this. I don't, I don't think I can get my freezer down to, to minus 35. I, I know I can't, I mean, 
I don't know, but I doubt I can even get it down to minus 20 and hold for seven days. Well, like I, and, it's really cool. And here's the thing we could, we could probably do, I, I suspect the, the, there's, there's straightforward kinetics on this and we could figure it out. Like basically, uh, for the given times and given temperatures, we could do a, a straight line extrapolation and figure out, okay, measure the temperature of your home freezer and then basically, you know, keep it. And then we can tell you how long you need to keep it. But, but I think the best advice, honestly, is to buy frozen tuna steaks because then you know that they've been frozen for yes. quite some time and because they've been commercially frozen they're probably below your home refrigerator temperature and so that would be that would be my my suggestion if you want to buy fresh then you need to do a little bit of due diligence um, and maybe a little bit of math um, to figure out uh, appropriate um, you know for home destruction yeah yeah absolutely and um, this is something that I, w- I want to highlight. Um, one thing that that uh, um, that Caitlin sort of alluded to on sashimi grade or sushi grade. Um, that's it's really it's a label that retail stores um, use, but it's for quality. It's not. It's like this is the right. best type of sushi, you know, fish that you should use for sashimi or for sushi. But it, by, by no means does it mean that it has been pre-frozen and then thawed for parasite destruction across the board. They may there may be some retailers that that do that, um, but but that it, it doesn't you know that grade. It, it's not a it's not a regulatory grade, right? Um, from a from a safety standpoint. So I mean, great great question. I. I, so this came up. I was at a post uh, Christmas um, drink and dessert uh, party last night, where um, where I talked with one of my neighbors about sushi and parasite destruction, and then my other neighbor who loves it when I when I talk all sexy like parasite destruction <laughs> thought, um, the uh, here we go. The Chapmans are here. How how quick will we, will we go from parasite destruction and worms to vomit and uh, you know uh, vomit particles? And and it was only five minutes, and then we started talking about norovirus. Well, so. and see, here's the thing: like I don't bring this stuff up, but my family knows that this is what, and you know, my extended family, um, you know, uh, knows this is what I do. And so, I I for the most part, I make my own choices. I don't preach to people. I don't tell people what to do, but if they're going to ask me my opinion, I'm going to give them my opinion, right? I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie and not, and not say like what I think about the dangers of eggnog. Yeah. yeah. It's like, you you want to know, I'll give you my thoughts, you know? I'm not going to tell you what to do. You know, this is a a safe space, but I'm going to give you my opinion since you asked for it. It's exactly how like how this thing answered last night or how it ended was um, so the individual said so what you know should I not should I not eat raw oysters and I was like look I'm not in the business of telling you what you should and shouldn't do uh, I, right you, I'm gonna tell you I'm gonna tell you what I do and I'll tell you what I think the risks are and then you make your own decision yeah. Um, and so just to, um, to jump a little bit into this, cause this, this goes to t- two things that I sent you or put into the files of which I titled texts Ben gets Yes. one yes. and I'm, I'm not going to answer them, but one was, um, okay. In Roanoke with family conversation, colon, is there any meat or can meat that was once frozen be thawed then frozen again and still be good later? Uh, question mark, LOL. And then I respond and say, yeah, that's, that's fine. Uh, from a safe, from a safety standpoint, the catch is that 
if it was thawed in the fridge or, or remained below 41. Um, it doesn't matter how many times it's re- it's uh, thawed or refrozen. And then um, my my friend responds, who who is in um, commercial sanitation, responds, cool, way to send all our conversation and keep us from puking. And then his response, which is the greatest, is no one ever asked me how to clean a toilet. Because that's, <laughs> that's his job. <laughs> that's his professional. That's great. <laughs> Uh, that would be. Yeah. I would. I would uh, ask him. I would, I would want to know about that. <laughs> you and I need to know these things. Um, then uh, the other text I got was Little Caesar cheese pepperoni left in a box uh, in the oven for 24 hours. Eat discard. And my response, and this goes back to something we've talked about on previous yep. episodes. Probably fine, safety wise. Definitely will be a bit stale, though. Low risk of making you sick. And he said, for the kids, clearly only safety concern. Thanks. <laughs> Kids <laughs> don't care about so quality. These, these are the texts I don't care about the qualities for the kids. Yeah. These are the texts that I get. Um, so uh, anyway, um, moving uh, moving forward, um, and this is uh, from uh, a, a question from uh, Deep Mars. Um, I've uh, message was a, a link to. Uh, will Mars missions make humans sick? And this is a uh, an article from uh, from uh, MSN. Um, I value the insights that that all y'all share about food pathogens on Barflog and on Food Safety Talk, even if it is depressing. Might be fun to read your insights on Mars. As an isotype geochemist, I served on CAPTEM and then NASA advisory panel on curation of return samples from the moon, Antarctica, etc. as pieces of Mars have been following into Earth's oceans, o- Earth's oceans for billions of years. We regarded the threat of exposure to Mars pathogens as something that could not be prevented. Uh, that is, if microbes exist on Mars. Um, and so this was, this was a cool, um, cool article that I, that I hadn't seen. Um, and so, uh, you know, essentially the, the article goes into, um, uh, uh, talking about, um, how we handle bringing things back from, from Mars on purpose. Um, and uh, the, the passage, uh, that sort of, I think, uh, jumps off on, uh, you know, the question to us was no one knows whether Mars harbors microbial life today, but if the planet is inhabited by more than a mere robots, those creatures could very well be single celled or- organisms tucked underground, underground where they'd be sheltered from the harsh radiation and possibly thriving near buried geothermal systems that provide water, nutrients, and energy. The problem is that people also might want to tap into the planet's subterranean resources, could expose them to these Martian germs. And based on studies of early microbes, there there are worrying signs that some bacteria have especially weirdly uh, behave especially weirdly in space. Our say, understanding how these host pathogen reactions change during spaceflight is crucial for long duration voyages, like months and years it will take to complete uh, human missions on Mars. Um, so, um, how do you, what do you what do you think? Uh, what do you think, Don? Uh, I think everyone should watch the uh, 1971 movie, The Andromeda Strain. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It, which is uh, which is directed by uh, Michael Crichton, um, uh, or it's, it's based on the novel written by Michael Crichton. Sorry, not directed by Michael Crichton. Um, uh, and also, speaking of Michael Crichton and movies he did direct, uh, we recently watched uh, the original, um, starring Yul Brenner, uh, Westworld, that the uh, the hit HBO TV series is based on. So, oh, um, yeah, which is a hoot. Um, it's uh, it's it's definitely if you especially if you've been a fan of the HBO. 
um, show. It's worth uh, checking out the uh, the the original um, uh, sci-fi western thriller, uh, which is written and directed by Michael Crichton. So, um, yeah, I don't I don't have a strong opinion on uh, germs from space. Uh, I think we got I got enough to do worrying about germs from Earth, but. Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting to think about, and I'm glad people are thinking about it. But uh, yeah, Andromeda Strain as a kid, uh, that that movie uh, was really I thought was quite uh, spooky. So, <laughs> yeah, Germs from Space, Germs from Space title. Uh, so um, yeah, the the only thing that I, that I want to highlight is that um, the uh, this article talks about some some experiments that were done in 2006 on Salmonella, showing um, you know a, a, in a short duration exper- uh, experiment there was increased virulence um, of uh, of Salmonella. That it's kind of interesting. I mean, the fact that Salmonella was used is we can also. Um, increase salmonella's uh, virulence by drying it out. So I don't think it's just space um, uh, related. Salmonella is is particularly good at surviving lots of weird conditions um, and then becoming uh, better at surviving in our guts after it goes through that. So, um, but what it does to other things, we're we're not sure um, yet. And and like you know, like you said, um, we we can't control the stuff that we already have. Um, in, in, in a, well, we, we're controlling it, it's, but we can't eradicate it. So, um, you know, I've, let's worry about that first. Yeah, um, exactly. But yeah, thanks for, thanks for, from deep Mars. This, this is one that I hadn't, hadn't really thought about. And speaking of problems that also that we can't solve, um, <laughs> we have, uh, a uh, message from a listener that says you can read my message but not my name. Um, let's call this uh, listener uh, Deep Soap. Uh, we probably have used that name before, but uh, anyway. So, so uh, the question is: there are liquid dish soaps and there are liquid hand soaps. There are sparse few that are labeled as both. I want to be able to use one soap for the few things that don't fit in my dishwasher, as well as for washing my hands after preparing raw chicken. If it is a single-purpose soap, which is better, the dish soap or the hand soap, is there a difference in safety or efficacy depending upon usage? Um, uh, I don't think there's much information. Um, companies obviously formulate for efficacy, uh, but there really isn't a science base uh, to answer this. Um, my recommendation is to say find one that you like um, that feels good on your hands and works on your dishes, and then uh, just use that one. Uh, I do remember, and Ben, you're probably a little bit too um, young for this, but there's some iconic um, TV commercials um, for Palmolive dish soap uh, where a woman is getting her hands manicured, and the, the, the tagline is, it's so gentle, um, you can even use it on your hands. In fact, you're soaking in it. So I don't know if you remember those Palmolive, I don't. That's... Those Palmolive ads, but we'll find some on YouTube. That's from uh, Mad Men era. I yeah. Think. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. This is this is a really good you know, question. I think this is one of those ones where um, you know we put a call out a, a few episodes ago about like when when you're in your normal regular life, let, you know what things pop in your mind about about food safety. And this is one I I use the same dish soap for hand soap in in my kitchen. Um, like a lot, we, we, I, and I think it's Don or Paul Mollov, who knows I'm not in the, not in the pocket of big soap, Don, <laughs> not uh, like me, <laughs> not, like you, not like you. Um, so it's, it's one that we, um, we do that. I mean, we, we use a different dish washer detergent mainly because I think there's stuff in there that, um, like that helps with the, the 
just uh, removal of debris, which I'm not doing so much in my uh, on my hands, but we we do we use that that same soap. And and uh, the way that I kind of look at it is, and um, you know, when you when you talk about it's formulated for for efficacy, I think the other thing when when we look at hand soap, there's a there's often a lotion that's added in there that is help helping. Um, you know, moisturize your hands after repeated washes where the dish soap, I don't think has that, it wouldn't, wouldn't uh, have that, that same um, moisturizing effect. So if you're constantly washing your hands in dish soap, um, it may be a problem, but you know, Don, I got, I got super tough hands. So um, that's how I, that's how I roll. But I mean, that's the, that's the thing. I think this is a cool, it, this one highlights this, um, that type of question of like, well, why is it that we have nine different types of soap? Right. And, and it's because of different, like soap from a, um, from a, uh, bacterial removal and rinse standpoint, um, uh, it all needs to have, you know, be built for the specific function, but from a, a efficacy standpoint, um, you know, like, like you said, I don't think there's scientific literature on it. And my guess is it's, it's probably all doing about the same thing. Yep. That's my guess. Yep, good. So uh, next uh, um, uh, next bit, bit of listener feedback uh, comes from uh, Ron, who says, uh, share all details freely. So Ron says, I use a sous vide circulator to make egg bites similar to the ones that are available at Starbucks. I blend a mixture of eggs, cream cheese, and cream and pour it into canning jelly jars. After adding cooked sausage and sautéed shallots, I cook for one hour in the circulator at 77.8 degrees C. The jelly canning jars are washed before making a batch but not sterilized. How long should these last in the refrigerator? How long if they rise to room temperature? Could they be frozen? Um, <laughs> great show. Please uh, feel free to make them longer and include more in-jokes. So uh, thank you. Uh, thank you that for that, uh, Ron. Um, so, uh, so uh, yeah, so um, one hour at 77.8 is killing vegetative pathogens um, and likely any vegetative spoilage organisms many times over. So I did the, the math on this uh, when he sent his question in. We're talking about hundreds or thousands of log reductions, so hundreds or thousands of orders of magnitude. Um, unfortunately, those same temperatures um, doesn't really do anything to spore formers. So I ran uh, Combase Predictions, uh, which is a computer database for uh, predictive microbiology, uh, at 90 degrees C, which was the lowest temperature available, which is still a good bit warmer than what uh, what Ron is using, you get a half a log reduction in Bacillus cereus. So, so really, nothing, spores are not being touched. Um, so let's answer his questions. How long should these last in the refrigerator? Well, they could last a long time, uh, but let's make some fail-safe assumptions. Um, uh, I would say uh, 50 to 150 hours, so somewhere in the range of two to six days. I, th- I think I did that using some growth rates for uh, Bacillus cereus, um, but they might, of course, last a lot longer. Um, how long should they last if they rise to room temperature? Again, uh, making some fail-safe assumptions, we end up at our good old uh, friend of three to four hours, which is what uh, would be allowed in food service, and it's generally a little bit longer than we would recommend to consumers. Um, could they be frozen? Yeah, uh, they could definitely be frozen. Uh, I would be a little bit careful about freezing in glass jars just because there might be a risk of, of uh, breaking the uh, breaking the jars because he says he is using uh, jelly jars. I mean, I guess they'll, they'll, they'll anyway, just be careful. Don't, don't, don't crack the glass because that could be a physical hazard there. Um, 
Uh, so the quality might suffer if you freeze them. I don't think eggs hold up particularly well to being frozen, um, but uh, but they'll they'll last essentially forever microbiologically in the freezer. Uh, the quality is you know the the texture may suffer immediately. The flavor will suffer eventually just because of the fat oxidation. Um, USDA recommends frozen sausage be stored for one to two months, and it's a little that's a little bit on the short side because the sausage is oxidizing. And so I would say again. Um, uh, Ron, if you want to store these in the freezer, I would I would say maybe a month, but but don't but but check out the quality first. Uh, maybe you know freeze and thaw one, um, you know within a day or two, just to see if you like the texture. If you don't like the texture, then there's there's no point in, in you know wasting any more of it. Um, and again, just be- best to make them and, and keep them in the fridge for a couple of days. Yeah, this was this is a really cool question. Um, number one. Um, to, to deep, deep sous vide. Um, uh, I, I have not seen a recipe like this. I'm going to try this because mm. it sounds, it sounds very, it sounds really good. It sounds like right up my like alley of foods that I, I really like breakfast foods. This is something that I'm constantly trying to figure out an easier way to, mm. um, to make a, a, you know, something, uh, in the morning quickly. And this is my thing. Um, oh. I was, I was thinking, and I, I kind of went the same way with, with, um, with spore formers and even things like, um, mold and yeast, uh, from a spoilage standpoint. And where would you get mold and yeast in this? Um, you, uh, listeners may ask, um, that cooked sausage and the sauteed shallots, uh, to me might be areas where we may get some survivors spores and, uh, th- that could, um, lead to this. It's not so much the eggs. I think if you had just this mix of egg, if it was just eggs that you were putting in this, which would be really, really boring, I think you would have less chance of spoilage microorganisms leaking in. But um, even with the cream, even though it's pasteurized, we know that um, you're, you're going to end up with some spoilage, um, uh, some you know, gas formers or, or something that, that sticks around in there that probably won't be taken care of uh, with, this, with this cooking process. Um, so I'm, I'm, with, I'm with Dawn. I think um, you know, a few days, maybe from a safety standpoint, um, may, maybe you're looking at seven days, uh, if we were really concerned about any listeria that might be introduced in the, in the cooking process, but, but you may get some spoilage, um, in there because the, again, the one thing that, that, um, that we haven't talked about here is, um, is pH. And I, my, my guess is the cooked sausage, even though that might be, um, fermented sausage, or it may be just fresh sausage, uh, everything that we're looking at here has got a, a pretty low, um, uh, a pretty high, high pH, low acid content. So you're not, you're not controlling. It's not like condiments in your refrigerator where you're able to control for, for growth by, by pH. But, but I'm, but thanks to deep sous vide, I'm going to try this. Yeah, you know, and that that reminds me that reminds me of an, another thing that that comes up a lot that I, I'm struggling with a good and it, we kind of get into it a little bit with the salmonella in eggs thing and I and I we sort of I sort of started to think about it when I was explaining to um, my uh, uh, the the folks I was with on on uh, Christmas Eve, which is this idea of well yeah okay you've been making this eggnog this way your whole life. And you've never gotten sick as far as you know, because it's a low probability event, right? Um, but, and and again, and this this came up in, I think it, this came up in discussions on the 
the blog, the, the post, your, which we talked about last time, your North Carolina State post on, uh, on the same topic of eggnog and people yep. saying, well, the risk is incredibly low, right? If you do the math, the risk is low. It's like, well, yes, your individual risk is incredibly low. Um, but let's, let's pretend that instead of managing your risk, let's pretend that you are a university professional giving advice to potentially thousands of people or you're a government regulator giving advice to millions of people millions of consumers, right? If you say that this is okay, it's not, yes, for you individually, it might be okay. But if everybody started eating raw eggs starting tomorrow, we'd have rampant salmonellosis in this country. Right, right. And, and that, and, and yes, your individual risk might not be that high, but, but across a pop, and this is something that I'm still I've been thinking about this a bunch lately. Like, what's the way, what's the, the easy, simple analogy that everybody gets about, like, about that? And I'm not, I'm not sure what, what it is yet, but, but there's this idea of individual risk. And it's, it's, it's pointed out so beautifully in the FDA um, uh, Listeria Risk Ranking from so many years ago on the risk to, per serving versus the risk to the population. And those are different things, right? And the risk per serving may be high. Um, uh, and the and the risk to the population may be low if not a lot of people eat this thing, or the risk per serving may be incredibly low, but the risk to the population may be relatively high if it's a low risk thing that is eaten by virtually everybody in the country. And so, uh, that's just a, a thing that people ha- I think have trouble maybe wrapping their heads around. Um, and I, I don't know of a good way to explain it, but anyway. Well, and I think this is I I, I really like that we're talking about this because I think this is one of the things that I've been really trying to. Um, articulate in media interviews that I've been doing around, um, romaine or, um, uh, recalled, uh, fiesta corn from yep. Del Monte. Yep. Um, the, 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 quote that I, that I keep using over and over again, I don't know if it's, if it's useful and, and it has to do with low probability events around food safety is we eat billions of meals a year that don't make us sick, but we eat millions of, uh, of meals a year that do make us sick. And, and that, like it, it, just based on what our, what our estimates are. And, and it's so, so it's like we, all of foodborne illness is a, a relatively low probability event, right? Like, I mean, even if we just look at the number, that sheer number of foodborne illnesses, it's not a lot. Um, uh, you know, one, one in six events annually, uh, one in six people getting an event annually is, is still, I, I think pretty, pretty low. One of the things that you run into issues, and I just sent you a link that we'll include in um, uh, in, in the uh, show notes, uh, is on risk comparisons. And we we need to make the analogy to help people understand risk, but you get into um, problems in the communication because how you and I view different risks are different. So my, my foodborne illness risk tolerance may be much lower or higher than my seatbelt wearing risk tolerance. And so, um, there's a really nice table that, that, that goes with, um, uh, an article that, um, Vince Cavello and Peter Sandman and Paul Slovich wrote, um, back in 1988 that I, that I come back to quite a bit. And this is involuntary risks to talk a little bit about this. Um, and this is table, uh, for those following, uh, along at home, this is table B3 from this paper. Um, on average, you have a one in 455,000, uh, uh, a risk of death per person per year of dying in a tornado. 
455,000. The same risk uh, exists for floods. But influenza is a one in 500,000 chance. And this is like really interesting, like to get into um, this, like these risks and to be able to explain it, you know, compared to like um, being struck by lightning, a one in 10 million, um, failing aircraft, one in 10 million. These, these things we have different, um, because food is something that we do every day and eggnog is food and it, from someone who is making eggnog and adding alcohol to it, they, or not adding alcohol to it, they may equate that to the same as like eating potato chips or eating, um, uh, a, uh, a prepared pizza or eating in a restaurant foods, foods, food. Um, sometimes that risk, it, it's really hard to make those comparisons to other things that are out there. And that's the conundrum of what we do, right? Like, because it is, we're, we're always kind of playing this, this probability explanation game. And some of the things that people do, they're really well rooted in, in things that they think they have a lot of control over because they do it every day. And some things are not. And, and it's really like interesting to look at those, those comparisons. And it's hard to, it's hard to articulate this. So that's what, I mean, where I started was, that's why I've been trying to make this, 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 um, this comment of you know, eating billions of meals a year in the U S but still getting millions of them making us sick. Um, that, that number comparison between billions and millions is a really hard calculation for many people to do in their head. Well, and, and this was recently brought home. Um, I don't know if you follow the news, Ben, um, uh, but there's a, go, there's a GoFundMe page. Um, that is, <laughs> you know exactly where I'm going with this, right? There's a GoFundMe page that is trying to raise one billion dollars, and someone, when they got to five million, um, uh, thought that that was halfway to one billion. We're almost so there. We're almost. We're almost there, Ben. So. Yeah. Uh, math, uh, math. Turns out, math is hard, Ben, um, and it's not just Barbie that thinks that. No, math. Yeah, math is hard, and it. Uh, I mean, so much of this of the science discourse is is wrapped up on this. Math is hard. That's why climate change doesn't get uh, people don't believe it, right? Like, like because math is hard, and and this and and you know, Don, I don't know if you know this, but today um, here in North Carolina, it's December, and I'm looking outside my window, and it's really sunny, and it's like 52 degrees. So, I mean, um, you know, it's not it's not 70, so no global warming for sure. Um, yeah, that's yeah for sure. It's kind of it's chilly out there, just like we would expect. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean that's this is it. If we could, uh, if we could solve this, and then ha- if we could ar- articulate it and explain it to everybody, and have people value it, then then people would use a thermometer every time. Uh, yeah, or they exactly. or they or they wouldn't. Right. Like, right. Or they wouldn't. And they would say, well, I, I don't need to because um, I my expectation of risk is, is still very low and I'm OK with that. Yeah. So go for I, it. Right. I, yeah. I really don't care. I just I, don't care I, anymore, man. Right, right, right. Right. Exactly. But that's uh, not true. I do care because that's why I do the podcast. Uh, for those that are the, those that listen and want to know, um, you know, those are the, you know, here's the thing. I, I don't necessarily care about reaching stupid people anymore. I only want to reach the smart people. Right. Yeah. I know. 
sometimes I want, there are some stupid people that want to turn into smart people that I want to be there for them. I want to, I want to be on that journey. Yes, this is, this is true. I will never, I will never turn away a stupid person. I just may eventually stop trying to help them. Right, right. Um, I, so speaking of, uh, um, uh, learning, (laughs) so I put a a link to this or a note in, in the uh, show files, uh, that's not even what it's called. Our super secret text uh, chat, not even there. Dropbox. Uh, You're thinking Dropbox. of Dropbox. Yes. Thinking of Dropbox. Hey, guess guess what I what I got get a, what I did for Christmas. I got uh, got a subscription to Masterclass. Do you know about Masterclass? This is not. This just sounded like a bit like there are some uh, a sponsor there. <laughs> <or not, but, laughs> uh, we're we're proud to announce our first sponsor. It's Masterclass. Masterclass. No, Ben. So, ben, tell me about Masterclass and what they're doing. <laughs> then I'm going to tell you about my my bicycle. That I ride at home. Right, right, right. This is a, uh, uh, and use the offer code uh, uh, food safety nerds. Uh, <laughs> you can get that uh, 20% off a of masterclass. No. Um, so it's this thing. So I'm, I'm constantly looking for good content to watch. And um, uh, Carolyn Dunn, my, who I've mentioned earlier on the podcast, who's my department head, who's uh, uh, helping with uh, driving the, our, our kitchen uh, build, um, she was like, you should check this out. There are all these like cool food-related classes, and, um, and there are. And I, I got it. And it is like 40 lessons from Gordon Ramsay on how to cook. And it's him in his kitchen. It's fascinating. It is. We watched uh, probably 40 minutes of Gordon Ramsay's like, here's how you should cut up her herbs. And these are, let's talk about root vegetables. Um, what we're, where we stopped at was making poached egg and mushrooms on brioche. And um, it's like, it's super fascinating. They're, from a food standpoint, from a food safety standpoint, from a, um, a classroom and content standpoint. So, so anyway, we, uh, we got a, uh, um, uh, a, a, um, a, a year past all these things to, uh, Jack and I watched, uh, and Sam and I watched, uh, Tom Morello, who's the guitarist from former guitarist from rage against the machine and audio slave talk about like how to be like how he writes guitar songs and how he learned how to use his guitar differently as an instrument. It is like, it's the coolest thing. So, so I'm all about masterclass. Check it out. Well, I, you know, I have to say, I, I am very interested in uh, James Suckling uh, teaching wine appreciation. So, yeah, uh, yeah, this looks this. And these, it's a real, it's a nice looking website. Uh, it does from the screenshots. It does look like it's very nicely produced. And so, uh, yeah, uh, Dominique Ansel is going to teach uh, French pastry fundamentals. So, uh, Paul Krugman is going to. So anyway, so so masterclass, you you bastards, you should sponsor us. Yeah, yeah, you exactly. I'm and and it is. So it is the website is beautiful. The um, they have a, an Apple TV app that is, I mean, it's it's beautiful. It is easy to navigate, but also really cool. It's shot well. I thought it was going to be kind of like um, one camera, like here's like like a bad distance ed class, um, but with really good people. And it's not. I mean, it's shot like a movie with multiple cameras and then good cutaways, but I'm really excited. Like, so I'm going to watch this, like David Axelrod and Carl Rove teach campaign strategy and messaging. I'm using this to be like smarter about things that are going on around me. 
like economics from Paul Krugman in this. So anyway, it's it's cool. And we um, when we purchased it, it had a buy one uh, gift one. So um, my my uh, father in law received the gift of of an extra class. I didn't I didn't send it to you. Um, uh, but, <laughs> okay, but. but but um, there's there's good like like good good reason he um, is soon to be retired because he works for a GM and they closed the GM plant. Oh. Yeah, but he's going to retire probably anyway. This is just like he is kind of forcing him to retire um, in a way that like he would have just kept working because that was what he did. So so we're like, hey, you should watch check out Masterclass. Yeah. So well, he's he's excited for it. Too. Yeah. I, and so and I and I, I I really don't have any more time to consume content. I'm trying desperately to read more uh, books. Um, but the time when I most uh, seem to be able to read is when I wake up at two or three or four o'clock in the morning and can't get back to sleep. So, oh gosh. Um, yeah. So this morning I was reading um, the, the current book that I'm reading, which is uh, Proof of Collusion um, by Seth Abramson. Uh, I don't know, I, if you know who Seth I follow him. Yeah, yeah follow he is him amazing Twitter, Twitter follow. Um, uh, and and unfortunately, that's not the most sleep inducing book. <laughs> but but anyway. <laughs> Uh, that's what oh. I was reading at two o'clock this morning uh, when I couldn't sleep in the hotel room where the fan wouldn't shut off. But anyway, so we have we have one more bit of listener feedback, and then we'll uh, we can we can end or we can talk about whatever you want. So yeah. uh, so uh, this says uh, you can leave my read my message, but not my name. Uh, I am writing to the show again. I was previously known as Deep Salty Sloop, but I think I want to be known as Deep Always Aggravated Sanitarian now. You got it, uh, D A A S. Um, uh, this time I'm looking for advice on HACCP validation at local food service level. Um, more than ever, and this I know this is right up your alley. Uh, more than ever, chefs. And food service restaurants want to do special processing, ROP, sous vide, fermentation, smoking, curing, juicing, et cetera. And absolutely, we've been talking about this on this show and, and past shows as well. However, uh, these uh, same <clears throat> chefs and restaurants do not want to do the homework to know what pathogen risks they need to control and, and to prove how they're going to control these risks to regulators. The HACCP plans they turn in are laughable, time-consuming, and extremely frustrating. Wow. I can see why you're a deep, always aggravated sanitarian. I think, I think you're probably right. Um, anyway. Uh, all of this proves that they shouldn't be doing these special processing in their food service establishment. I, I agree. Um, often they can barely handle the basic top five FDA-identified foodborne illness risk factors in their food service establishment. Are there any resources you can recommend for helping chefs, food service managers, and regulators with HACCP plans, or is there a place with peer-reviewed set recipes for special processing? Um, uh, thanks again for the podcast. It's great. That great. I've been listening for a year now. So thank you so much, um, uh, DAAS. Uh, your, your comments are, are, are very, very kind, and, and we, we love them. Um, uh, so... <clears throat> Uh, so I have personally, I have always struggled with HACCP at retail food service because the system, HACCP system is really designed for large food processing companies with only a few products. It does not scale well to the restaurant level. It might work in selected cases, like for special processing, like for what you're talking about. Um, uh, so I'm, in a minute, I'm going to let you talk, Ben. Uh, but what I, I mean, I think the, what he's proposing, which is uh, like a website for clearing and peer reviewing recipes is a great idea. It hasn't really been fully realized. Um, there are two uh, great resources. First of all, the one from uh, Pete Snyder's website, which is now uh, offline, but uh, you can find through the web archive, which we will we will link to the web archive link to Pete's website, which was hi-tm.com, the Hospitality Institute 
um, I forget, Hospitality Institute, Institute uh, Technology, Technology Management. Management. Yeah. Something um, like that. Which they transitioned to Snyder Hassop, but then I think uh, it just, just went away uh, with, with Pete's uh, retirement. Um, uh, also, I think uh, Brian Numer's site, um, which I will give a, a plug to, which is food-safety.guru, um, which we will also link to. I think Brian um, is a university guy like us, but he also has this uh, website and he has a, a, a booming consulting business where he does a lot of work um, uh, with the Vegas casinos and others doing this this kind of stuff. Um, it's a, so that's a that's a pretty good website as well. Um, uh, your thoughts, Ben? Yeah, so this is one that's way way up my alley, um, and I'm looking. Uh, unfortunately, so I have we have. I'm going to send a show note to you um, of a link that is broken that I will update by the time we. Uh, um, we post our show notes, but we, we have a, a, a food safety portal, um, for all of our food safety programs, um, in, at NC state in, in my program, the family consumer sciences. Um, and, uh, we, um, for the last, oh gosh, four or five years, um, when I'm not doing consumer food safety stuff, what I, I'm doing is um, variants and HACCP plans at retail um, and verifying and validating and teaching people how to do it. Um, probably the most popular and most fun workshop that I teach is uh, a, a course on on this, a two day course on how to how regulators sh- um, should uh, evaluate the science in a HACCP plan and retail HACCP is its own little animal. Um, and, and the, the, the quick answer, uh, to this Don is that the food code actually provides the, so much of the prerequisite program development need for HACCP plan that for, for the most part, HACCP plans that, that we, as we train people on both in, in, in industry and, um, uh, as regulators, um, don't, don't need to be super complicated. And I, I agree with, um, with deep, um, uh, deep, deep, um, uh, aggravated. always aggravated. Yeah. yeah sanitarian. Um, and, um, because we, as when, when I started this process, uh, four or five years ago, uh, being on this, on this variance committee, we would get a HACCP plan for sushi rice, uh, that was 600 pages. And then we would get another HACCP plan for sushi rice that was 14 pages. And, and both of them were like equally correct and equally incorrect. Um, and, and there were like easy fixes on, on both of them. But, but the, I think part of it, almost like our risk discussion is that HACCP as a term, HACCP as a concept is something that scares people off in the sanitation, uh, like sanitary and environmental health world, as well as in the uh, industry, re, you know, like retail food service industry, because it, it just seems so, so like scary. So, um, I, I had a, um, the, my like origin story on this is I had a lunch with a couple of public health folks, uh, environmental health, um, uh, you know, local public health folks here in North Carolina at a KW cafeteria. It just not too far from my, um, uh, from my office and KW cafeteria is kind of like golden crowd that they, you don't serve yourself. It's like a big long cafeteria line. Um, we went and sat and hashed out, uh, they, they came to me with a need, which was we need our folks to be able to evaluate 
um, these plans and help the industry write them or at least give them the, some, some background on what they need to do. Um, but we don't have the, we don't have the capability or the, um, we're not confident enough to, to do that. And we've had a couple of HACCP programs and, uh, like workshops that we've paid for and it's missed the mark because it's just like all it is is processing and that's not what we need. So, so they asked me to, to create, like to put on just a one-off workshop for those two health departments. And, and I was like, you know, that's not super sustainable. What if you gave me a few months, let me come up with like a curricula and let's go ahead and do something for everybody. And we'll start, we'll pilot it. You guys will be the first ones to get it. And, and but let me do something right across our state. So, um, I started with, um, and I'll send you a link to this cause I just, um, found it. Uh, I, f- I started with a, um, uh, uh, a document that was, oh, I lost it. That came from universe, um, from, uh, department of Massachusetts, uh, or sorry, Massachusetts department of health. Um, and it was a really great, like training course curricula that, that came out in the late nineties that went through, here's what validation is. Here's what, um, here's what a variance is. This is what HACCP is. And then I kind of had cheat sheets on here are the hazards that need to be controlled for all of these processes. Um, and so I started teaching from that. Um, and then, uh, over three or four years modified that to update to the 2017 code and, um, did it in a two day step where the first day is like getting people familiar with the terms of HACCP and then like building the building blocks of what it looks like in, in food service and retail, um, building a couple of plans in on whiteboards and then like some seat work to, to actually have people get familiar with it. And then the second day is all hands on where we do, um, like we ferment yogurt. And so to give them the experience of this is what's happening in this yogurt fermentation. And then let's go back and let's, let's create what a HACCP plan looks like now that you know what the process is and we actually made it. So you, you got your hands on it, not just like, Oh, you, you know, you heat up some milk and then you cool it and, and then add the starter culture, but actually let's make it now. Let's, let's create a HACCP plan from it. And so we've been really successful in, um, in delivering these, um, these workshops, these two day workshops, um, to train almost, I think it was 300 people here in North Carolina over a couple of year period, then started branching out out of our state, trained some folks in, um, uh, in South Carolina, um, and in Virginia shared our curricula with, with our colleagues in Virginia. So now they're teaching this class, went to Rhode Island, um, and, uh, New England, uh, last year, um, a couple of times trained a bunch of local regulators and our extension colleagues, uh, shout out to, um, Nicole Richard and Lori Pavarnik, um, and Amanda Kinchla in, uh, in Rhode Island and Massachusetts. Cause they, we shared the curriculum with them and said, okay, here's, here's how we teach it. And, and then, um, sort of gave it, uh, uh, to them to, um, to use and, and spread the, the good news we're doing because of this. And this is what we followed up already with deep aggravated, um, deep, always aggravated sanitarian on this. But we, um, I think in 2019, we're delivering this workshop to regulators and industry folks in like, I think it's seven States, um, we're going to Nevada, um, Washington state, Michigan, um, 
New Hampshire, Maine, we're kind of going all over the place um, to deliver this. And so, um, so followed up uh, and no, no OPSEC to deep, deep aggravated, uh, deep, always aggravated sanitarian. Um, so we followed up about his, uh, his or her state um, as well. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, hopefully we'll be going there, but this has become the most fun uh, workshop that I do because that hands-on day spending, um, a couple of days with, with usually in between 25 and 30, uh, local environmental health folks and teaching them like, here's how we approach HACCP has been really, really, um, it's really fun. It's really rewarding. You get really great stories. It's fantastic people. And that, that day two of hands-on fermenting and like we make, um, uh, we, we do some sous vide, we, um, do a cook chill process, use, um, like use, um, uh, vac masters and ROP things, uh, we're built, we built a, um, a, a, a drying, uh, component in the last year. So we dry some, uh, some meats and we dry some vegetables and do all that hands on and talk about what's happening in the process. It's the most rewarding, um, uh, uh workshop that I do and has become popular. So if cool. people want to know more about it, we, I will send a link to that is broken that you can't look at today. <laughs> Yeah. So be- the yeah the the link that you that that the way it came through to me was it just resolves to foodsafety.ces.ncsu.edu. So um, yeah, and which very nicely promotes our podcast. It so sure does. For that. And on the left, you're welcome. And on the left side, there's a tab that says retail HACCP, and that's ah. where all this information should be. Um, but it's a ah. uh, 404 right now. So oh, we hope you like counting sheep because we couldn't find what you were looking for. This is very cute. Very like very cute. Yeah, good, good job. Nice, nice four hundred four page. Yeah, yeah, that's that's our uh, that's our our folks, our uh, uh, college uh, IT people. Um, so anyway, yeah, thanks for the for the question and again. Thanks for letting me uh, uh, advertise and uh, about the things that I do in this. But this is one that I'd love to go. We'd love to go do more of this and then um, share it with other extension folks to teach it. Because again, it's it's one of these ones where it is. I mean, it's great to go. I'm, I'm not going to go to like nine different States, um, this year, uh, or seven or whatever it is. Uh, you know, we've got, I've got a team of people that go do this. Um, I'll go to a couple of, of the fun ones. Um, so if, so if I visit your state, you know, you're the fun one. Um, oh. but yeah, yeah, yeah. And if I don't, it's, it's only because I'm busy and we have kitchen things. Um, and you're yeah. so fun. <laughs> uh, <laughs> eventually that's uh, not going to work. I know it's um, true. Hey, but so, um, wanted, so Yeah. So, so we don't have to talk about it, um, but uh, th- and and there's a bunch of things in here that um, has co- have come across my um, my uh, radar here because of uh, Max Temkin, um, and this one we don't need to talk about it, um, but uh, and it's not directly food safety related, but there was an Esquire, and this is old news. This is an Esquire article from September of 2018. Uh, which everybody should read. It's called, uh, the title, the headline is Devin Nunez's family farm is hiding a politically explosive secret. I don't want to spoil it. Um, it's, it's worth taking your time to read. Um, and it is, it is, you know, it's vaguely food safety or, or, or food related. So, uh, highly recommended. Um, did you? I know that you very much wanted to talk about what was lurking in your stadium food. Um, I don't, I don't go to stadiums or eat their food, but, um, did you want to talk about that? (laughs) I want to talk. Yeah. So this was, uh, just really briefly. Um, there was an, uh, a really nice, uh, website, uh, that ESPN brought out, uh, on stadium food and it's, they, they've done this, this a few times and 
the I guess the quick again like the Devin Nunez go check out this article I think we linked to it in the last show notes but we'll do it again um it it is um it, it really does a good job of highlighting um th- things that people see on restaurant inspections and if there's something that I can try and like that I really want to focus on um, going forward, it's trying to better translate restaurant inspection results and what they mean and the risk aspect of it because there are yuck factors and there are risk factors and we've talked ad nauseum about that. Yep. Um, and the these articles do a really good job highlighting the the yuck factors and they – they often skip over some of the risk factors that I would see as real issues. And there are things out there that they could talk about, but it's not as terrible as like there are cockroaches. Um, and you're, you know, as they update this and do it year after year, they, they try to rank like, you know, where, what's in the Charlotte stadium versus what's here at PNC arena and in Raleigh versus Philadelphia vet, you know, veteran stadium or whatever it's called there now. Um, and where you should go and not get, you know, get sick or what you should eat if you don't, don't eat it. If you do want to choose to eat at these places and, and like our conversation about risk, um, it's not quite as simple as that. And these are low probability events. And what we really need to be focused on are what are the factors that increase the chance of that low probability event happening? And I don't think ESPN does a really good job on doing that. I think they, they do a good job on the things that are gross, like, oh my gosh, there's mice or there's a moldy bread. Um, and we, you know, one of the things I highlight in the article, um, in, as you scroll down, it's kind of hard to link to it cause it's like mo- not modular, but there's a picture in the article of, uh, a, a Twitter, um, uh, a, a tweet of someone saying, Oh, thanks. Whatever stadium it is, um, for giving me this really moldy bread and listeria, which is not true. They probably didn't give them listeria. They did give them moldy bread, but moldy bread. Eh. What I really want to know is did the band, you know, uh, parent volunteers who are handling with their hands, the hot dogs that they're handling, giving me, did they wash their hands? Not, um, not so much like were there 14 flies in Arrowhead stadiums kitchen. Right, um, and and I, and it's interesting because I think I first looked at this on my iPhone, and it's gorgeous on the iPhone. When I looked on the link just now uh, on on my desktop, um, the first thing is a big blank space that says "missing plugin," which is my indication <laughs> that they're using Flash, which is terrible. Yes. Um, but if you actually read the article, they they do they do uh, talk to uh, Chris Waldrop, uh, who yes. is a colleague of ours at Consumer Federation of America, and then now at, now at FDA, oh, and now at FDA, yes. uh, and then also uh, formerly at FDA and now at University of Maryland, uh, Dr. Robert Buchanan, otherwise known as Bob. Um, there is a hilarious, I have to call this out, there's a hilarious picture of Bob. He is wearing a lab coat, which he never wears, okay, because none of us wear lab coats. He is in his laboratory. There is a Vortex mixer. There's Petri plates. And what Bob is doing is there's a bunch of printouts that he's got spread across his lab bench, that, that uh, and he's pointing at the printouts. And so I just think it's very funny that they gave him apparently printouts, which he felt compelled to wear a lab coat to walk into his laboratory to read. I mean, there's just so many things wrong with that. Um, and, I, and I know Bob's just a good sport, and he's 
he's just posing for the picture in the way that they wanted him to pose. But um, I just think that that's hilarious. So so check out, check yeah. out that lovely picture of Bob Buchanan, which I'm going to later on text uh, to Michelle Daniluk because I know she'll be amused by it. It's awesome. Yeah. And so this one is um, – so that link, that's a that article is from I think 2011. That was the first time they did this and then oh, they okay. updated this to – um, again, in 2000, same thing outside the lines. We'll link to this and, uh, in show notes, I'll get you a link right now. Um, uh, in just like two weeks ago. So, so, so in fact, comparing the two, I thought they did a much better job back in 2011 looking at risks. I think this time it was a little more alarmist and they missed, they missed the, what I, you know, the food safety nerd in me says is the bigger story, which is let's talk about the risk factors. Oh, okay. So yeah, I apologize. I, you, you put, I think both links in the show notes maybe. And, uh, all right. So yeah, so I, I linked to the earlier article with the picture of Buchanan, but that's not the most recent one, which, uh, which also has the same title. I think yeah, it, yep, it's looking, the same title. Yeah, that's that's not good. Um, no, it's, yeah. All right, we'll link to, we'll link to both of them. I got the, I got the new one and the old one. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah. All right. So the new the new one is the one that uh, that that looks nice on your iPhone, sort of. So yeah. Yep. Yeah, but it's same same stuff applies, right? It's like uh, yuck, yuck factor versus food safety, not the same thing, um, and it doesn't. It doesn't really help to confuse those in people's minds because they're already confused about food safety and food spoilage and and stories like this that don't differentiate really don't help us. Right, right. And and some of these things are are like there is good stuff. So like and I'll I'll read from the article um the 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 long form article according to a complaint by the Marion County Public Health Department in Indianapolis 19 band members became ill with vomiting and diarrhea with the first report coming in at 7:45 shortly after the band had eaten box lunches containing sandwiches chips cookies and apples provided by stadium food service staff so um th- th- so so that's like Okay, how did that happen? Is that related to this, like, the food that they were served? Was there some sort of a toxin? That seems like a really quick onset. And none of that really, like, gets played out. And, in fact, if you go down a few more paragraphs, they talk about how they thought that it was um, norovirus. And it's like, well, if it was norovirus, it wouldn't have been soon afterwards. No, sorry. Let me go back. It was norovirus linked to that lunch that they just ate. It wouldn't have been that quickly afterwards. Maybe they came with norovirus because they're a band and they are together on buses all the time. Um, and, and so they, they miss the nuance of food safety, I think, in, in some of this stuff. And it sounds bad. And that's where it's on ESPN. So it's like getting to the – to, to these, the, the regular sport reading fan, um, which, which doesn't, it's not the, it's not the public health nerds. Right. Um, right. But, but I mean, I think the people that read ESPN deserve to have the same high quality information that the public health nerds do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They absolutely. Don't, they don't, yes. yeah, they, they deserve good, good science-based information too. Yeah. Oh, uh, Don, I think that's a show. Dan, I think it's a show. I think you're right. We did it. We did. This is, I think, the first time that we've done a show with one of us being on hotel Wi-Fi, and it worked. You sounded great. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Um, the, and, I, and I just want to, I just want to give a shout out to us who are actually <laughs> recording a show over the holidays, as opposed to all those other poser podcasts that pre-recorded clip shows, you know, which are way more work. Um, but we're actually working on the day after Christmas. 
Yeah, because by working, I mean I'm talking with a friend of mine. <laughs> exactly, just hanging out, and it and like in the morning where uh, it was going to be kind of slow, uh, and I was going to be hanging out reading stuff on my iPad anyway. Might as well read some food safety stuff to someone, like a bed stop, like a bedtime story. <laughs> uh, so anyway, good. Uh, this is this will be our last show of uh, 2018, or maybe our first show of 2019, depending or on when I get it posted, or our first show of 2019. Happy New Year! All right, Don. I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Right. Well, part part two of our extra special holiday. That was good. Yes. And that gives us space, um, but you know, before our next episode. So. Yeah. So speaking of that, when do you want to try to record again? So I'm good. Let me look. Um, I got a talk on the ninth of January. I could do. I really could do any time on the Thursday, the tenth. If you, if that works for you, yeah, absolutely. Let's do, let's do, let's do uh, nine a.m. on the tenth. Yep, perfect. Yep, that's good. Uh, could we make it so to just so I think about my like logistics? Could we make it like nine fifteen? I know that's <laughs> because I got. I'll be dropping Jack off at school, and it probably won't be until like nine on the tenth. Sure. Yeah. That would be that would be fine. Okay. Or or let's let you know, let's be like more realistic. Let's make it 9:30. <laughs> okay. I have I have penciled in something at 11, um but I'm okay. not I'm not sure that that's a real thing or not. So it's a recurring thing that may have been rescheduled. So um but w- let's pencil in 9:30 and we'll go okay. from there. And if I don't have to drop him off that day, which is a possibility, um, then we can go earlier. Okay, that's that's fine. But well, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll pencil it in for now, and we'll we'll, we'll uh, update as needed. Okay, cool. And uh-huh. I'm basically free that whole day. I do have a well, I have a p- potential f- phone call at uh, at one o'clock um, um, with with a student um, unless she reschedules it. But but that's the only other thing I've got going. Okay, cool. In got it, got it, got it, got it. 
Um, perfect. And then this one's yours, but there's no rush because yep. we just posted today yep. or yesterday. Um, yeah, have fun with your uh, with the rest of your holidays and your yeah, family. Thanks, you too. And you guys, are, you guys are going to play hockey, right? We are. We're going to Laurel, Maryland, to play some hockey uh, tomorrow morning and uh, visit our uh, see what the shutdown's doing. We're going to check out. <laughs> Can you fix that while you're there? Yeah, I'm going to see what the shutdown's all about. Fortunately, the Smithsonian's not shut down. Oh. They're, yeah, it's another not impartial. So we're going how, to the wait, Smithsonian. Wait, how is it not shut down? I don't know. I don't know. I just, like, that is, this is a fakey shutdown, I think, right? It's for the people that we know that work, they're shut down. But then things like the Smithsonian is not. But I heard a lot of um, parks and, and stuff are shut down. So it's That's weird. right. Yeah, so the Ford, Ford Theater is shut down. Hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, oh, someone's at our someone's at our door. So the dog is barking. He's very excited to see people. Um, all right. All right. Cool. I will uh, talk to you uh, in a couple of weeks. All right. Sounds good. Bye bye. Bye.